I want to take a few seconds to remember Paul Mason, a good friend of mine who unfortunately passed away earlier this month. Paul was an avid fan of many things and a guest to a wish I could have had on the podcast. He was a teacher to many and an inspiration to even more, mentoring many folks through the challenges that they faced. Here's to you, pal. Over to the next episode of Cast. Cool. Intro time. Fuck, what episode is it? It's 16. Right. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Sure? Uh, welcome to... Oh, fuck. It's called Cast, Andy. It's called Cast. <laughs> we've done so many episodes. Like, right. It's called Cast. <laughs> welcome to Cast. This is episode 16. Uh, this episode we have... Who's our guest this week? Rude. Oh, yeah. Mormaid. We've got Mormaid on. <laughs> yep. Uh, who are you and what do you do? Hello, um, my name is Morgan. I'm an information security consultant in the finance sector. Um, it's largely a lot of kind of generalist consulting, change engagement, blue team sort of stuff. Um, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, nice. I uh, don't think we've really, uh, not so explicitly mentioned uh, by any of our guests that they've worked in the kind of finance industry and it's something I don't know massive about being relatively new to the industry as well. Um, what uh, what was your kind of beginning like? What, did you originally think that that's the kind of industry you were going to go into, or did you start more generally just to get an idea what your origin story is? Yeah, so I actually used to really hate banks. Um, just the customer service with like high street banks and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Didn't have a good relationship with them and didn't think that it was the kind of place I wanted to work. You kind of imagine that they're really like stuffy. Um, the rules aren't very accessible. It's not very clear. Um, so I really like what challenger banks are doing in the space at the minute, like Monzo and Starlin, the likes of Revolut mm-hmm. um, with making things um, like app focused and um, kind of targeting millennials and, and different demographics rather than having a, a high street presence. Um, mm-hmm. So what I actually did was like I have a, a completely non-technical, non-security background, um, did a, an English undergraduate degree and I was sort of interested in security at the same time, dabbled, um, went to a few conferences and things. And then when I graduated, I applied for an IT graduate scheme. Um, part of the recruitment process was you had to give a presentation on the future of technology in the finance sector. Mm-hmm. And I focused on security because I kind of knew a bit more about that than what banks were doing in the technological space, which didn't mm-hmm. seem to be a lot at the time. Um, and I think I focused on uh, some DDoS attacks and like bank hacks and things that happened in the previous couple of years. Um, and the questions after is they were asking me what the difference was between a DOS attack and a DDoS attack and how you would deal with a DOS attack. Um, and they seemed to quite like that. So because I was so interested in security, they built me a specialist security um, IT grad scheme track. And then I cool. did kind of well, rotations just, just for you. through that. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Pretty I was really flattered at the time. It's cool because it means nobody's done it before, or at least in that setting. Like, um, yeah, that, that's all. I've never even heard of that happening. That's super cool. Yeah, yeah, it was really fun. Um, I learned a lot. Um, most of the placements that I did were focused in like the risk sort of area rather than security ops. Mm-hmm. So it was a good way to kind of ease into it and approach it from like a business perspective and like not having that technical background gave me a bit longer to find my feet um, and get to grips with like technology and stuff. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, how much, um, how much like kind of active researchers there and 
that's a stupid question. Of course, there's going to be a lot of active research in the field of finance, like. But um, is is there is there any kind of niche areas with this? Uh, with obviously, you mentioned things like the changeover to like apps with things like Monzo. Uh, I'm a like use Monzo myself, and like it's an entirely different experience to using you know a brick and mortar bank. And mm. imagine with that comes a, a lot of different considerations for not least security, but obviously like you know. Like the business model, it must be entirely different. Like, what chucking um, bricks at people is different from like using apps. I mean, of course it is. Oh, god, Andy, like, what are we to do yeah. with you? Oh, right. <laughs> so, um, there's specialist finance sector regulations like uh, PCI DSS that concerns the handling of payment card data. Mm-hmm. Um, the PCI Council has also produced other standards like the Software Security Standard. Um, and that is really helpful for people who are developing like payment apps and whatnot. And then uh, a few years ago, there was a piece of regulation introduced, um, uh, the EU Directive for Payment Services, PSD2. Um, and it handled chiefly strong customer authentication for um, payment service providers. So it was kind of linked to open banking um, and like the APIs that banks use to display your balances um, with other providers in their apps and, and whatnot. Um, so it, there is... Um, I guess it is quite niche um, in some respects. And then like larger banks, so say the likes of Lloyds, will have specialists like cryptographers and whatnot um, who work on their staff and will help develop standards and stuff. Um, and there's likely, um, I haven't seen it, but there, there's likely some people who are um, working at kind of larger banks who do research in conjunction with universities. Um, so yeah, there's, there's probably quite a lot in that space too. It's uh, sort of a microcosm of security in its own right. It's quite a lot of data to process, I'd imagine. So from the perspective, I mean, for those who don't know Morgan, she's quite a fan of cryptography. Do you find that you deal with cryptography quite a lot in your day job or do you? Mm, no, nah, not really. Um, yeah, um, I don't really touch it a great deal. It's just kind of like you'll get a query from the business about how they should um, transmit some data. And it's like kind of standard um, business, like advice and engagement sort of stuff. Uh, but from like a crypto perspective, that's sort of taken care of elsewhere. No, so, so it, on you go, Dave. I was just going to say, um, so like, it's interesting having this kind of link. Uh, obviously, you were talking about your kind of English degree um, to, to kind of start with. So I did audio technology and then completely switched kind of over mm. um, like industries, um, which there was a lot of kind of crossover, like mostly because it's technical based. But um, what kind of skills um, for all the people out there that are similar to us like, and that they've went to uni and they've you know, kind of done a degree and they're maybe thinking about switching to something else for whatever reason they have? I didn't graduate, um, I'm just saying. Sorry, I just got a bad cough there. This isn't about you, Andy. <laughs> Shut up, Andy. This is about our guest, Morgan. Right. So, <laughs> Sorry. English, right. Do you what, speak what, it? <laughs> what... Um, <laughs> What kind of kind of crossover from like your English course do you think maybe is any of that helping you now? Is there anything that kind of is a strength now switching industry? Would you say? Yeah, so I've got a bit of a, a strange relationship with my undergraduate degree. Um, I studied English because I really liked it. Um, I'd always kind of been good at it, and it just seemed like the natural next step after I did my A levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I took a complete kind of. 90 degree turn I guess and went into security instead which wasn't something that I'd expected or really planned for Mm -hmm. um and I kind of 
I come across people quite often, um, especially in the beginning, because I've been in security about three years now. Um, the first year or two, I constantly got the, I know you're not technical, but, and then someone would mm. explain something to me that I already understood. Um, yeah, that's shit. And, and kind of dumbing things down quite a lot so that you can pick it up because they, they clearly don't think you're capable because you don't have a computer science degree. Mm. Um, they're cunts. They're just cunts. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, in the beginning, I was sort of a bit... Um, I, I don't know, it was a bit funny about it. I kind of wished I'd studied something else, um, something more technical because it felt like it was holding me back. But now yeah. that I'm in um, a different team, so my team at work's really great. We're like a really diverse bunch of people. Um, and probably half of us are arts graduates. Um, so my manager, he's got an English degree as well. And he did a master's in IT security um, a little while after that. And he's been in security like 20, 25 years. Um, nice. And then we've got um, an arts grad, um, there's a guy who's got a master's degree in like film studies um and it, it really like kind of gives you a different perspective on things so um you see this all the time people don't understand the value of neurodiversity um in teams and unless they have it and then you you can kind of see what value that adds um mm. from a skills perspective um i'm pretty good at digesting like large bodies of text to getting sense out of them and being able to translate that easily into like a form that somebody else can understand which is good from a business engagement and like technical engagement perspective because i can sort of translate between the two yeah um, that's valuable like i yeah. cannot yeah 100 percent. like <laughs> something for me that's been a struggle and oddly even though going through university like you would assume you've got your nose in a book it was mm. incredibly practical what i used to do both through college and uni just doing audio but um see now that i'm having to take on like you say just like large and large amounts of kind of information like reading just wall to wall uh, like just page to page books um blogs like that's been a real struggle for me and it's something i've had to adapt um and being able to do that like you know and having done it for like a long period of time and then going into an industry where you're having to explain probably complicated concepts to people yeah. that aren't in the industry i kind of just imagine that being a, a massive strength uh, to be able to carry over yeah, well, I yeah. suppose the, the, the core fundamentals of, well, I suppose what we do as a job, Dave, is explain like M5, technical to business. <laughs> like you're translating Nessus output, or you're translating uh, technical output. And I suppose it's the same for yourself, Morgan, where you're actually translating business into risk and credit risk and, and all the other fun stuff around financial risk. And it's, I suppose it's a common language between everything and security is risk. Yeah. But, because you don't because you understand stuff from a technical perspective but also see it from like a financial perspective do you find that people treat you differently because you understand risk from different angles or is there is there any kind of indifference in your your kind of current line of work from that perspective um i think it depends who you're speaking to to be honest so um i do quite a bit of change engagement at the minute um so my team have kind of similar skills to me and um, are equally good at understanding technical concepts and translating them into terms that business people can understand. Um, so we will sometimes answer queries from people who work in the branch network and they don't spend a lot of time at head office and they don't know mm. what individual teams do. And they, they might have worked in a branch since they were 16. Um, so information security to them can be a bit daunting and they might not understand why we have some of the controls that we do. So it can be really valuable to just like take an extra couple of minutes and, and explain something to them in a way that they'll understand. And then you get them on side and they feel like because they understand it, that they are part of keeping you safe. Um, and that's really important, I think, in like building a good security culture. Um, For sure. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do get pushback sometimes. So 
when you speak to other technical teams that aren't responsible for security, it's not at the forefront of their mind. It's not one of the chief concerns that they have when they're building a system. Um, and I think like as a security person, like most people probably understand this. Um, if you kind of come into a situation, especially if you're engaged late, um, as happens quite often with um, change and things like that in, in a lot of organizations, um, it's really difficult to kind of get a project team on side and say, you need to implement these controls because we have to mitigate these quite glaring risks or these issues that like with the system that you're building. Um, and sometimes because it, it doesn't add um, value in the sense that this will make you more money because you've implemented this feature. Um, yeah. People see that as um, a bit of a drain instead. It's like a detriment to the project because you're likely to hold things up. It's going to take longer to meet your security controls or your requirements and implement that stuff. Um, and, and that can result in like quite a bit of pushback. You can get locked out of situations if you don't engage with them properly. So I think like professional skills, some people call them soft skills, but I think that's a bit condescending. Um, professional skills are like really important in that situation. Um, the yeah. way that you speak to somebody and engage them and manage that relationship is so crucial. Yeah, can you think of any particular, we actually talked about this in the last podcast, uh, I think it was, can you think of any kind of times where that has really kind of hit home for somebody, um, not to put you on the spot if you don't remember anything just now, it's not a problem, but um, can you think of any times where you've had a really valuable experience kind of getting on side with somebody that's maybe started like not really understanding the security kind of ideas and then uh, behind what they're doing uh, and kind of getting them on side to think about it a bit more? Have you? Can you think yeah. of any kind of times like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so because I do so much business engagement work, there's probably a few things like that. But one that um, was really valuable to me was around the time that Payment Services Directive 2 came into force. And um, what I did was I was on the grad scheme and um, I had a lot of free time and they didn't really know what to do with me. So I kind of just used to find things to do and sort of busy myself. Um, and I went into security architecture for a few months and, and did a placement there. Um, with this really, really cool guy who mentored me. And I ended up doing a threat model of the online um, login like portal for your, like, managing your accounts and things. Um, and if, um, it basically turned out that you could lock somebody out of their account with just their surname, uh, postcode, and um, date of birth. And that, as, as you can imagine, is all really easy information to get from like social media or if you yeah. know someone personally, if you've got, say, um, a customer that has an abusive spouse and they want to stop that person from getting access to their savings, all you have to do is like log into this online portal or, or put these three pieces of information onto an, like an open web page um, and request a password reset form. And then they can't log into online services. They can't like telephone bank, anything like that. So they can't access their savings, basically. It basically puts a lock on the account. Um, and I found this out and I gave a little presentation at a risk committee about it. And then I spoke to the customer experience team um, and they'd obviously tried to implement something that would allow customers to easily change their password because the previous process had been paper based, um, not very secure, quite like outdated. Um, mm -hmm. And they were trying to kind of come into the 21st century. But because they hadn't had that engagement with the security team, um, it just hadn't crossed anyone's minds that that was a thing that that could happen to vulnerable customers. Um, so we worked together to kind of get that fixed. And then because of that work, they basically gave me PSD2. Um, and I looked at the regulatory technical standard, wrote some internal standards for how you should handle customer authentication. And then they fed that into the project that was building the um, mobile banking app that they were mm -hmm. building. So uh, yeah, that was really cool and really rewarding. It's probably one of the favorite pieces of work that I've done. 
Yeah, no, that's fantastic because, yeah, that's just real change right there uh, and stuff that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, how how long would that have been an issue for on that particular system? Uh, was this a live system that it was uh, yeah. you identified the issue? Yeah, so it might have been about for a while. Yeah, that's so valuable. Yeah. I'd, I'd be well happy with that. Like, Yeah, I think it had been up for quite a while. Um, and if nobody had looked at it and I, there wasn't really a lot of free resource to look at things like that. And I guess it's not something people think about because even if you work at an organization or as you come in, like as, as a fresh pair of eyes, um, mm. you tend to think that people have taken these things into account already. People aren't necessarily aware of like the landscape or the amount of like legacy infrastructure and technical debt that will be there. Um, and that sort of risk that might have kind of flown under the radar while you weren't aware of it um, until somebody points it out. So um, I really like pieces of work like that. I think they, they do add value. I think yeah. it's also incredibly interesting from like, a, well, these apps, for example, would probably pen tested, but the thing you've pointed out, there's a logic flaw. And mm. it's something that often um, those that are hardcore technical just don't think about. And you do find it time and time again, you will do a pen test or a vulnerability assessment or you'll receive a pen test or receive a vulnerability assessment or whatever else. And there will you'll be tested time and time again, but getting a fresh set of eyes on things will be like, well, actually, I'm going to look for logic flaws. I'm going to look for this. I'm going to look for that. And you do find the really odd, um, like logical vulnerabilities, whereby things like adding the username, the sorry, not even the username, the, the the first, the last name, the date of birth, and whatever else, will enable you to change someone's password. Equally, um, those who have potentially suffered identity theft, there are certain banks that will take just the first line of your address and your date of birth, which can be a via open source intelligence and that's a logic flaw in their sign up system that they just haven't thought about and mm. without people pointing out these flaws uh, it, it continues to be an issue so it's well this is it kind of links back to what you were saying about neurodiversity doesn't it like and if you're talking like perspectives and taking people that think differently you know maybe learn differently because every industry i think is a bit different technical stuff people learn in a particular way like you say they might not necessarily pick up on logic um whereas you'd have someone maybe doing law you know that looks for fine print you know there's so many different ways of kind of approaching an issue and giving that kind of fresh perspective and clearly sometimes that reaches rewards yeah yeah absolutely um i've had a few things this year actually where you can just kind of tell that whatever solution was designed or whatever training is in place um it wasn't a diverse team that worked on it um so the one that immediately springs to mind is um i ordered pizza um probably like the beginning of lockdown maybe like april may time and um the delivery driver came to my house dropped my pizza off um, I was just kind of like chilling. It was like a Friday night, had a couple of drinks, you know, jumped on Discord to speak to some friends and stuff. Um, and at five minutes after he dropped my pizza off, I got a call back and I was thinking, like, what's going on? Has he given me someone else's order or something? Like, it seems OK. Um, and he asked me out. He asked if he could come back over um, and like if I had a boyfriend and all this other stuff. And it was just a really uncomfortable, awkward situation. Yeah. And he shouldn't have been able to do that. So if you look at like, um, Deliveroo and, and Just Eat and the likes of those apps. Um, the drivers aren't given your phone numbers. They call you through the app. Yeah. Um, and that's not what happened with Domino's. Um, they did something else. Um, so I, I kicked up a bit of a fuss about it and I was like, I need you to revise your like sexual harassment tra training for a start and like data protection because that's a complete breach of GDPR and like you've mishandling customer data there. Um, yep. And also you should probably look at like um, personal details masking when you're contacting customers because they shouldn't be able to call me after they've like dropped my food off, that's the end of our exchange. Not acceptable. Um, and I think like if they just engaged a couple of women 
on on that project yeah. i guess when they were building the app or whatever that might not have happened and you see it in, in other situations too so there was another time a few years ago now where i was in a doctor's surgery and um if you've been into like a, a modern kind of doctor's surgery in the last few years they have these like giant tvs now like plasma tvs on the wall um mm-hmm. and it'll display your full name the doctor that you're having your appointment with and which room your appointment is in and I did a doctor's appointment. My name flashed up, thought nothing of it, kind of went to my appointment and then left. And then a few hours later, I got a DM on Instagram from somebody who'd been in the waiting room and I was completely unaware of them. And it, it said something like, this might sound weird, but were you in the doctor's earlier? And like, that's just so creepy. But like, <laughs> what else do we expect now, really? Like, it, it's not acceptable no. behavior, obviously. But if you put somebody's personal details up on a big TV screen for everybody to see in a busy waiting room, you're kind of opening them up to that. And if they're yeah. like at like a in a GP surgery, especially, they're probably going to be vulnerable. They might be like quite sick people. Yeah. So that's no, a design decision, like you say. Like yeah. that's a consideration that's been missed, and, like, and it takes a certain perspective or a very well-rounded person, which I'm sure there's a lot of developers out there like that. But there's a probably also a lot of them that aren't. Right, and it does take having yeah a diverse kind of culture and the development team uh, and thinking about the actual use cases and the, like you know for these things to be considered. Um, is there yeah. any regulations or anything for these kind of apps that are and obviously. You mentioned GDPR there, but um, for uh, how they would use a phone number and that, is well, there anything that would d- stop d- them doing that? Like, data protection and stuff like that cover, well, the data protection that covers cover. that. GDPR should cover that. There are, there's a US yeah. law as well that should cover it. Um, other than that, I'm not 100% sure. I know that in the medical profession, they have a certain degree of confidentiality data that they deal with um, and that there are regulation around that, both in the UK, the US and Europe. Um, but I, I'm not I'm not 100% sure if there's anything else in any other industry. Again, Over I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not clued up. Yeah, I think it would just be GDPR as standard, but yeah. it's just, it's so strange. They're not technical issues. And as a security community, that, and like in an industry, that tends to be what we focus on. We look for zero days or like unpatched servers um, and, and like backdoors and stuff. And that, that usually, um, that's not going to be what hits an individual. Uh, like as a consumer, it, it's not going to be because somebody didn't patch a server. It's going to be because they've leaked your personal details because there's a crappy process in place. Yeah, and they've not thought about the consequences of mm. you know how that that is used, like um, which I'm sure is very common. Now that's really interesting. Does this? Um, ha- so I think you've obviously done something quite recently. It was just in one of your blogs um, in regards to social um, dating apps um, and the kind of security behind them and. Or, uh, but you know what? There's no point in me talking about it. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Because it was super interesting and very fucking relevant to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, there's um, an awareness week that happens in the finance sector specifically, and it's in November, and it's called Take Five for Fraud. Um, I guess I'm, I'm plugging this now. Um, it's no, run fine. by no. the no. National Crime Agency and Action Fraud um, in conjunction with like the finance sector. Some organisations choose to take part and some don't. Um, but they basically spend a week rolling out awareness materials and, and delivering like workshops and um, talks and things in branches and in their offices to educate customers about the risks of fraud and the kinds of scams that they might be targeted by. Mm-hmm. And then to teach, um, I guess, internal employees uh, more about the different kinds of fraud that customers will face and um, technically about security and what you can do with a system. So I saw some really interesting talks the first year that I was aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one where 
um, somebody basically bought some leaked credentials off the dark web, used it to hack a bunch of Blizzard accounts, um, changed all the details and, and locked people out. They just standard account takeover and then sold all of the rare items um, and gold on those accounts um, for cryptocurrency, which they then put into a Bitcoin blender to kind of disguise the origin, launder the money a little bit. And then they would swap that for real currency. So it would be back in the like regulated like banking sector environment. Mm-hmm. Um and another one of the talks that I went to was about different kinds of fraud that people um, experience and, and like standard things like rogue traders um, where somebody will kind of approach you on your doorstep and say, oh, your roof tiles need fixing. Um, I can do that for you. I'll get it done quickly and it'll be cheaper than whoever else does it. Um, try and like socially engineer you and let you know that like you're friends or something silly like that. Mm. Um, but it, it tends to work because they tend to they target um, older people and people yeah. who are like vulnerable and at home. Um, usually there's nothing wrong with the house or um, there might be something wrong and they'll either not do the work at all after they've been paid or they'll start doing the work, actually make the situation worse or break something and then bugger off. Um, And romance scams tend to be, um, so the the victim, average age of a victim um, is about 50, disproportionately affects women more than men. So I think it was about 65 to 70% of victims of romance scams are women. and they, on average, lose about eleven thousand pounds, but women tend to lose twice as much as men. So it's probably about fifteen grand um, for a woman to lose in a romance wow. scam, maybe five That's or six a, for a for a, a man. Yeah. yeah, it is. Um, so I, what I wanted to do was have a look at what mechanisms dating apps have now to report that kind of thing. So I'd seen a few things recently about how you can now report abusive behaviour online and offline for things like Tinder and Hinge and Bumble. Um, so if somebody assaults you or, um, you know, you, you've heard something that they've like done to somebody that, you know, um, or that they've been reported to the police or they're on a register or something, you can report that to the app and they'll have their profile taken down. And I thought that was really good. And then I mm-hmm. thought about it a bit more and, um, cybersecurity awareness month and, uh, take five for fraud week were both coming up. And I thought, I wonder what they've got in place to det- like deter fraud and to detect that. So I downloaded a bunch of dating apps and had a look at the reporting mechanisms that they've got for users and what advice they've got available um, on like safe dating and stuff. And then if there was any external help available mm-hmm. and um, I looked at a whole bunch of them. So I looked at Happen, Hinge, Tinder, Bumble, Grinder, um, <laughs> Plenty of Fish. <laughs> I mean, sorry, okay. it's about an ominous laugh there. Just, no, yeah. I mean, I, I wanted like a good diverse like section, I guess, selection of, of dating apps, and um, I wanted to look at a couple of dating apps that the older people would use as well, because that um selection that I mentioned before is largely focused on millennials, but I guess older people will use things like eHarmony, Match.com, Plenty of Fish. So that's something that I'll probably do a part two on and look specifically at like web app native dating sites. Dating um, seniors as well. dot com. You gotta, gotta get that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, there's plenty. I think uh, there's, a, there's a lot of apps out there that started off as dating websites before cybersecurity was really a thing that people were concerned about. Um, before GDPR was in force, um, Data Protection Act, you know, wasn't really strictly that adhered to. Um, and they didn't understand the risks, I guess, or, or what somebody could do if they got hold of all of that personal data. Um, yeah. And yeah. you would kind of hear about somebody having their identity stolen, but you didn't expect it to happen to you. And you definitely don't expect it to come from a, a dating app, you know, or a website. Mm. Um, and a lot of these things were developed without the focus on user safety, security and privacy. Um, so that's what I was looking at. And I specifically started off looking at 
mechanisms for reporting fraud and money laundering. Um, and Tinder, Hinge and Bumble came out on top. Um, so they all had like a user safety center that's just hidden under your profile somewhere. Um, they'll give you like plenty of advice on uh, what not to do. So don't give people your bank details. Don't send them money. Uh, report them if they ask you for money. Um, meet them in a, a public place. Share your location with your friend. Tell someone where you're going. Make plans for afterwards. Make sure you know how you're getting home. So mm. all like personal safety stuff. And then um, as well as that on Tinder, um, which I thought was really, really cool. There's um, an external sources section and it'll point you to the likes of um, human trafficking websites, um, reporting mechanisms for domestic violence, yeah. uh, support for like sexual assault survivors. And then um, there was a section that pointed you towards the action fraud website as well to report um, scams and money laundering. Um, and the reporting feature actually on a match as well. You just click the three um, little dots in the top right corner and mm. it'll let you report anything pretty much. So Tinder even has a, a feature that'll let you report like suspicious links. So if someone's trying to fish you via Tinder, I'd not seen that before, but it's like really forward thinking of them. So I thought that mm -hmm. was really cool. Um, but then, like on the flip text, side, actually, fishing people via Tinder. <laughs> do not, <laughs> you did not get adds, this idea from adds me. To, adds to list of pretexts. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> Professionally chaotic. Freshly uh, evil. <laughs> no, that's good that that reporting uh, functionality yeah. is there because uh, yeah, I'm just imagining the amount of situations. Or uh, I'd imagine that stuff wasn't really there in its infancy, like and. No. Um, it's a shame it's probably hidden behind closed doors the kind of successes of stuff like that would you say like um i can't imagine yeah. it's very public kind of situations where that kind of reporting tool might have helped people like um yeah. but it obviously would be just in the, the nature of it like if they know if there's ability for you to say that maybe someone's a bit of a what's the right word predator like yeah. um the, the ability to be able to kind of say that to them and for them to actually look into how their app's being used like and taking that feedback on board i guess is there any evidence to say that it gets used would you say um, um i haven't any seen effect? any studies so far but i think as with all kind of risk-based and cybersecurity related disciplines um we introduce these features after a few bad things have happened so that they mm. don't continue to happen so it's a bit of a shame but they are doing the right thing by the users um and it is For really sure. beneficial because i've seen so many people um like on the likes of twitter that, that say like oh this new feature that tinder has so that you can report people who are abuses offline that's really interesting it's really good um i want to see more of this um the fraud reporting side of things um still quite new i think so that the safety center wasn't on there a few years ago it's relatively new Mm -hmm. um but um yeah that'd be something i'd probably look into in um part two so i'll i'll look that up for you <laughs> um and then i'll look at like all the dating websites and apps as well so i had a look at plenty of fish as, as part of the first kind of host of applications um and it was honestly atrocious mm. it was so bad you can't that was your um, favorite app i thought you really oh, it's the worst <laughs> so you, you can't report a match you can only block them and it doesn't ask you for a reason um having your account deleted is an absolute trial so the um, you basically go onto the help center and it'll tell you to deactivate your account, which there's a button for. And if you don't want to deactivate it and you want to delete it, it gives you a manual link to a website. It's not hyperlinked, so you have to type that into a browser. Um, and then once you've gone to the browser, there's a form that's really poorly designed. The UX, the UI is terrible. Um, and then that doesn't even work. So you, you've still got an account after you've asked like six times maybe to delete your account. Um, 
so you have to then hunt for like a manual request like help form um on the website and then submit a request to a team to have it deleted uh which i did and then i got an email back saying sorry our team's been really busy and they haven't been able to read your email if you still need our help reply to this email so i had to email them again mm, like this is like my fourth attempt of having my account deleted um and i was like please like delete my data um, and they got back to me a few days later and said that they had, but I'm probably going to submit a data subject access request just to see how good their data deletion processes are as a bit of a follow-up. The part that always scares me the most is, um, and it, is, it can be applied to like, like Me- Google, Meeting other Amazon. human beings, yeah, it's terrifying. That, well, that's one of them, like, not done that in six months, it's been fucking great, uh, but you know, like, <laughs> see with these websites, it's like, so you, the information you give them, so you give them maybe your name date of birth where you're from mm. what your favorite dinner is and stuff like that so that's all perfectly fine but um and if it, that that is handled properly and you ask them to delete it then i'm sure that a lot of them will either try or they're certainly obligated to but it's the other information they might have on you as well like your profile as in the profile they've made of you based on that information and i can only assume that that happens i know it happens for like amazon you know, like marketing companies in general not to make any specific yeah. ones but i just wonder if that's prevalent hashtag, in hashtag the dating world as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. For sure. so yeah. that was actually really bad with plenty of fish so tinder doesn't collect that much actually it's really light on the, the data collection front for um users yeah. um it's like your name that you can put in any given name um date of birth and your age and that's static once you've input it so you can't change it if you put the wrong thing in or if you're trying to be opsec on social media um and then it, it lets you kind of put a bit of information into the bio about you it can ask you um who you're interested in what your sexuality is um your location all of that but a lot of it is optional and you don't have to input it when you're creating a profile on plenty of fish it collects so much information about you so um, it asks you uh, your name, date of birth, um, gender, sexuality, your parents' marital status, how many siblings you had, which order you were born in. So if you're the oldest, middle, youngest child, etc. Um, what earning bracket you fall into, which is like so delicate, it's horrendous that yeah. I, don't, I just don't know how they do that. Um, and then like your favorite things, how ambitious you would like say that you are. Um, all sorts there's an inordinate amount of data and you can't actually cancel the process of creating your profile when you're halfway through so if you've downloaded the app and then you've gotten a bit put off by how much data they collect you can't pause that and like leave you can't go back to it like it just kind of stays there and presumably they've collected all that information and they'll just keep storing it um so there'll be a lot of prospect data from people who've started creating accounts on plenty of fish that then haven't been deleted um because they don't know that they've still got that information that's interesting because like unless you get to what i'm assuming is the end of the form where you get hit with terms and conditions like yeah. uh, i wonder where that regulatory wise kind of leaves them with that data and what they can do with it like you've yeah. not signed an agreement but it has been given and put on your servers like yeah it's pretty yeah. dodgy they're a u.s For company sure. but they're they're serving kind of um eu data subjects so they're still obliged to comply with uh, gdpr well we've seen that gdpr doesn't really work because um, mm. BA this week or last week, they were fined initially 180 million euros, and then they negotiated down to a mere 20 million euros. Because because COVID, they're like, oh, it's a uh, it's bad times. We're not making as much money. Uh, yeah, we can only afford 20 million when actually when actual fact they were fined 180, which is a mm. significant chunk of change. I think the ICO, the ICO has a, a real responsibility here to start taking this stuff more seriously. 
Um, a lot of the reason that companies don't take security seriously is because they see other organizations having massive breaches um, or like getting ransomware or, you know, having an entire customer database like posted on the dark web somewhere. And the response from the ICO is a slap on the wrist. It's, it's really light in most cases. Um, and when it first came in, people were hoping that the fines um, compared to the Data Protection Act breaches would be um, substantial enough that people would start to take security seriously. We would see less breaches moving forward. But, you know, cyber crime evolves. Um, and I, I don't think our attitude to deterring people and making sure that they uh, implement the correct controls and have a good security posture has evolved with that. So we're still being a bit lax on it. Um, mm. I think the ICO like, really needs to do more in that front. I suppose it falls back on the the risk versus re- reward ratio. It's difficult to say. In in uh, yeah. Anyway, um, where whereby companies offset the risk against if is it going to cost them more in fines or is it going to cost mm. them more to fix something? So if they can afford yeah. to um, not fix something but pay the fine if they're going to get done under PCI or under ICO or GDPR or whatever else. Maybe not so much GDPR, but they they, they tend to kind of factor that into the way in which they yeah. calculate risk. So for example, if if they've got windows 2003 on the network and it's on a flat network they're probably not going to patch it because if that gets popped it's uh well it doesn't, doesn't con- in their eyes it doesn't contain any sensitive data therefore therefore words are hard uh, <laughs> therefore the the offset of risk is like well it's going to cost us 100 million in fines but it's actually going to cost us 300 million to re-architect the network so we're actually going to yeah. take the take the risk and pay the fine rather than re-architect the network and make it more mm. secure I think the problem yeah. here for me when it comes to the risk is like when you're talking about dating apps, like so, like across the world in so many countries, that risk of that data, like and the, the sensitivity of the data as well. When you got where like countries with like religious persecution, like mm-hmm. homophobia rampant, like and what happens when like how do you put a price on the risk of that information getting released in a country like that like and the the human factor like and it it disturbs me at times when there's a you know a price that's put on that but it's just obviously that's just one metric used by you know many businesses i'm also just thinking about like see if you're is it like obviously see if you're just if there's a data breach and it's your name you know your age and and, you know a couple of character profile like maybe like tinder because like you say from my experience i it doesn't ask me for too much information i was thankful for that like but what happened is so much worse if someone like plenty of fish that has all that data in their databases doesn't seem to have a good process for getting the data deleted or maybe not caring about it as much as you should like yeah. so much more damaging if that much information I gets suppose, out. I suppose you've got to keep in mind as well, so we're only talking about the surface data, um, mm-hmm. so the, the stuff that they, they, they actually ask you for, but additionally these applications collect additional data. Most That's of them have most of them have link-ins to things like Facebook and Twitter and and all that fun stuff. I mean, Facebook alone is like, well, fuck Zuckerberg, fuck that, yeah. <laughs> almost. Almost. Hello. Yeah, almost. <laughs> Fuck the, all the apps. Yeah, fuck them all. Just fuck them. I think it's, it's a valid point, though. So say if Plenty of Fish had a breach and somebody got hold of all of that information about their users, they know that they're looking to meet somebody because they're on a dating app. They know um, whether or not they're a viable target for a romance scam because they know what income bracket they fall into. They know like if they're an only child and all of that about them already. So they can start to build up a picture um, of who would be a good victim, somebody for them to target and who's going to be like a, a big payoff, like a good payday for that. Um, 
and it, it massively exposes users it makes them really vulnerable and a lot of them won't realize that because the average person doesn't really know that much about cybersecurity. Especially, yeah. it's, vulner- it's a vulnerable, it's a vulnerable position. Like, there's no doubt. See, if you're someone that's lonely, like, and like you, and someone has an effectively enumerated, like, like your entire your life through, if they had that data, you know, they know that much about you, and they can start social engineering into these scams like that it's it just right just even think about it it's hard to put into words but like the level of vulnerability there and the people that take advantage advantage of that are, is really quite sad so i hope these apps really do get it right and they are it sounds like they're at least working towards it to some degree i mean equally, yeah some of them are some of them yeah yeah so equally it feeds into interesting pretexts as well i mean going back to what you're saying about data being breached you um from a social engineering perspective you have so much information about someone so you can craft a very 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 bespoke pretext yep. in that you know what they're interested in you know where they live you know these all the other bits and pieces and in some cases you might know their conversation history so you can build a pre-existing pretext that's like oh i saw you were chatting to jane doe about x i'm also interested in x or um you could craft a, a a kind of message history from that person and, and kind of spoof chat from that perspective so uh, things like smishing are more uh, popular now so potentially um, I saw you were chatting to Dave on, on Tinder and uh, Dave, Dave's really into audio shit I'm now doxing on the podcast to apologise <laughs> no, no that's fine that's fine I may get a day out of it continue I know Dave's really into audio um, <laughs> how about you pay me all this money and I'll teach you audio as well and then like boom money game's a winner professionally evil taking the business card. I don't know where I was going with that, but still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's a really big deal. Yeah, it is, and I hope they get it right. And I think that's, it's interesting to hear, you know, somebody that's in that kind of space, like helping make these decisions uh, and helping people along um, to, so that eventually, you know, we might get it right and it will help people. What's your kind of, uh, what what's your kind of work day to day like in your role? Um, I love not, I love how you're going back to the questions. It's just it's such a <laughs> such a natural. It's, I, it's literally my role in the podcast, Andy. Let's be honest, like I, well, I, I know, steer you're, the you're, ship. Your steer role the ship. is to yeah steer the ship and mostly roast me and, and the, get, yeah. I think yeah. you bring it on yourself to be honest. What the roasting? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> slash R slash roast me. Um, my day to day at work. So um. It's a bit of everything, to be honest. It's a, it's quite a generalist role. There's a little bit of ops in there, kind of um, reporting, monitoring a few systems. Um, lots and lots of change engagement at the moment, um, especially in the finance sector recently. There's been a huge focus on operational resilience because we saw a couple of years ago, um, Lloyd's and TSB, they split um, and they had to basically... Um, like dissect their customer, their core customer database um, and split up the, the TSB customers from the Lloyd's customers. Um, and it, it really didn't go very well for TSB. They had um, weeks and weeks of services outages. Um, people just couldn't get into their accounts to access their money, uh, mm. completely locked out of their current accounts. Sometimes they could see other people's balances or messages that were supposed to be for another customer. Um, and the regulators really didn't like that. And there was huge reputational impact for TSB um, and they got fined for it as well. I can't remember how much, but um, yeah, it, it was really bad. Lloyd's kind of got away pretty much unscathed from that. Um, but because of things like that, and then like, you know, DDoS attacks against banks, which we're seeing a lot more of these days, um, 
it's critical national infrastructure. So it's regulated by the NIS directive and then also the Prudential Regulatory Authority and the Financial Conduct Authority. Um, They're really quite hot at the moment on making sure that your systems are architected for resilience um, and that you can continue to service your customers in Mm -hmm. an emergency and like a disaster situation, basically. So huge focus on disaster recovery and business continuity. So a lot of organizations are um, changing technically very quickly um, because of that. They've got a huge appetite for change and some some places that are completely moving all of their infrastructure into the cloud and then simultaneously trying to replace um, like a a critical piece of infrastructure or um, a customer database that's been there for 40 years or something you know Um, it's it's definitely not small pieces of work and to run kind of change projects like that in in tandem um, is a big deal Um, so I, I do a lot of change engagement I probably have for the last couple of years I've been at this place just over a year now Mm-hmm. Oh, um, out of interest, I mean, for those who are maybe listening to this who are not informed, what is change engagement? Um, it's basically if you kick off a, a project to to implement a change in an organisation, it could be a process change. You could be implementing um, a new vulnerability scanner or something like reasonably small to mid-sized like that, or it could be something huge like a complete um, rearchitecture of your entire network. Um, including your branch networks. It might be that you uh, redesign all your branches and you choose to close some of them and open some elsewhere. Um, So they're not always technical changes, but sometimes they can be quite crucial. Um, If it goes wrong, you could take down the network, that kind of thing. Um, And change engagement from a security perspective is where you engage with the project and you assess um, the changes that they're making and you make sure that what they implement moving forwards is as secure as it can be. Um, so, uh, like things like, um, you can split it down into like a, a layered model, um, and have like physical security, um, data security, like with encryption and things like that, um, application security, and then you'll pen test the entire, um, system or solution at the end of it, um, to validate that the risks that you've highlighted and whatnot, um, have been mitigated and that they're not still live in that system so that you're implementing something that puts you in a better position. Mm-hmm. Um, so change engagement is basically it's a mix of business engagement with quite a bit of technical stuff thrown in um, and then some validation at the end. Um, but because it's so people centric, uh, it's a lot of juggling and it can be quite stressful. Um, but I do a, quite a bit of that at the moment. That's probably the bulk of my job. Um, and then like kind of other standard um, security risks or practices like third party supplier assurance. Um, where you'll just you'll maybe do an assessment of a third party supplier um, either a prospective supplier or somebody that you have an existing relationship with um, and you'll just kind of check up on them every now and then make sure that the controls that they said they'd implemented are, are still operational they haven't had any breaches recently that kind of thing um, so that you know that if they're handling customer data or you have to share any data with them um, to provide a service that they're doing that in a way that keeps your customers safe um, so it's, it's quite a, a broad role quite- really it does sound quite broad but also equally quite in depth it sounds very similar to an extent to technology and information risk i don't know if that's uh, a department um exclusive to like bigger banks or is that is, do you have any kind of involvement in that kind of set of stuff or am i ch- chatting nonsense <laughs> no it's not nonsense so the the actual team name is information security risk um and we're chiefly a risk management function um but um because of the the way that 
I guess um, different organisations will split out security responsibilities differently. So some things will be handled by um so say like uh, firewalls might be maintained in a security ops team or they might be maintained in a, a networks team. Um, it just completely depends. Um, access management. Um, so access might be granted by the likes of help desk if you're quite a small organization or they yeah. might have a specialist access management team that handles that for you. Um, it just totally depends. But the way that ours is split, um, my role is quite broad. So I'm quite generalist in terms of consultancy. Do a little bit of everything at the moment. Um, lots of like booking pen tests and stuff. So <laughs> quite enjoying that. So I suppose from that perspective, um, I mean, most of the guests we've had have either been on the kind of offensive security or the defensive security perspective. But um, what's it like from a receiving end of like, well, I suppose the output of pen testing and digesting that information? Uh, is there any kind of key takeaways that you've you kind of noticed over the, well, the time that you've been doing it? Or is there anything that's particularly interesting or detrimental or like, yeah, I suppose it's a lot of questions in one. <laughs> It's a really good yeah. question, though, just to say that I'm quite interested mm. to hear this as well. We've not really heard about what happens after the pen test. We've heard about on the pen test, but not, yeah, like you yeah. say, afterwards. So what do you think? Yeah, what's your take? Um, it can absolutely depend. So it depends on pretty much everything. Like um, The solution that, it, that you're testing, um, the consultancy firm that you use, some are better than others. Um, I'm not going to name any names there, so don't ask me. Um, the quality of the report that you get. So somebody who's newer might not be as adept at writing a decent report. I've had reports through that were purely technical with no management summary. And then I've had reports through that were just a man management summary and hardly had any technical detail in there. Um, so the, the vulnerabilities that are uncovered in that kind of report are really difficult to fix because you can't give the teams that are remediating them any information really about what happened. And you have to have several calls with the tester to kind of determine what it was that happened and what it was that you need to change in order to fix that. Mm. Um, conversely, when you get a technical report through that doesn't have a management summary, that's really um, quite political. Um, so there was a, a report that I got when I was quite new to the industry um, I'm, I'm still quite new, I guess, but when I was a bit newer, um, <laughs> and uh, it was it was quite a, a sensitive um, pen test because it was uh, in scope for some payments regulation, um, and it came back and it was basically on fire. Um, it really wasn't in a, in a good shape at all. And is, there, um, is this what, the one that answers that question later on in the podcast? <laughs> Don't ask me that question, but yeah, it is. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so, not an inside joke, Dave. It's part of the podcast. It's Don't not. Worry. It's not an inside joke. Um, yeah, so I, I got this pen test report, um, or we got this pen test report, and I was a grad. I was the most junior person on the team. Um, nobody really wanted to touch this with a ten foot pole. It was <laughs> really political, and uh, it. It, like effectively the the manager of the security team tried to escalate it um and it was uh pushed back and nobody wanted to know about it um so it sat in a drawer for a couple of months and then he sent it to internal audit and then he resigned <laughs> which i thought was a, a power move to be honest i read that sure. <laughs> um and then uh, somebody else took over the team and needed someone to look at this report and they they gave it to me to do a bit of analysis on is what they said um and what i actually did was i went through the report and i kind of grouped all the findings together by priority um, of remediation, what I would fix first, um, which assets were um, pretty critical that, that kept coming up in, in these reports with the same vulnerabilities affecting them, um, repeated findings, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then I put a management summary together because the report didn't really have one um, and wrote a little bit for the chief information officer. Um, and then, 
you know, somebody else obviously took the credit for that work, whatever. But, um, <laughs> that was that was given to her. And then um, a, a project was kicked off um, to remediate the findings of that that vulnerability um, report, um, Penta support even. So that was really, really cool. It was a, an interesting piece of work. But I did see firsthand like how it could be that some pen testers will go back to the same organizations year on year and they'll find the same vulnerabilities affecting the same systems. And in some cases, it's just like change the date on the report and add all the missing Windows patches that they've not deployed since then. Um, oh dear. <laughs> yeah. and there's some, some places definitely like that. And I've seen people leave pen testing um, because they've had that kind of relationship with their clients. Um, yeah. and no then, job satisfaction at all, like just even no. for because it, it's just nothing's getting yeah. fixed. Like, yeah. I've heard that pen testers get really bored just testing web apps as well. Um, it's almost like a punishment. Like we're going to stick you on a four-week web app test, and they're like, "Oh no, what did I do wrong?" No, I think it depends on the person. To be honest, I mean, you you can get interesting web apps, and you can get boring web apps. If you're chucked on like a brochureware site, but yeah, I can it, it's totally sadism or masochism depends on what kind <laughs> of the stick you're at. But equally, um, yeah, I suppose going back to the the, the processing or, or receiving pen test reports the thing i'm interested in most the thing i've been discussing with a lot of people recently is prioritization of risk mm. um it, certainly what i've found as a pen tester and through queuing people's reports over the years that i've been doing pen testing is people tend to collect vulnerabilities they like to have so many vulnerabilities in a report but in actual fact i suppose on the receiving end it's about how you prioritize those risks i mean in your experience have you seen I suppose you've seen probably quite a lot of pen test reports, but do you tend to find that people will over, like overrate risks or, or kind of class something as a, a critical when in actual fact it's a low and it's not contextualized or have you got much experience with that? Yeah. So this is actually probably something I could talk your socks off about. Um, we've, got a, we've got time. We've got time. part time master's degree um, at Royal Holloway as well as working in the industry. Um, and something that I want to do research on in the future is prioritization of vulnerabilities for remediation. Um, so because of that pen test report that I mentioned previously, um, I got that and I was kind of baffled because I was the youngest person on the team. I hardly had any information security um, experience really. And I just kind of wondered why I'd ended up with that. And in hindsight, it's probably because if I messed it up, they could be like, oh, you know, she's a grad, she's been here a few months, whatever. Um, but I actually think um, in, in one respect as well, maybe people just genuinely didn't know how to interpret that and prioritize it. And that's a real problem for smaller organizations um, who don't have a specialist security team and, and deeply technical staff who won't be able to translate that risk or who don't have a second line information security risk team. Mm. Like, How do you translate basically what is in effect a bunch of technical jargon, um, depending on the quality of the report that you get into um, you know, going to the board and saying, we need this much money to fix these systems because these vulnerabilities that we found present X amount of risk. It, it's it's a losing battle basically for some people. Um, and there's, there's basic hygiene practices that need to be in place before you can look at securing your estate. Um, and a lot of people, they don't, they don't even have like a, a CMDB. They don't have like an asset register. So they don't even know what they've got and, and where mm it hangs together and how it's connected. They can't identify their critical assets from an, an operational resilience perspective. So mm. a vulnerability on a particular server that handles um, like queries for a certain application, for example, that might be operationally super critical. It's legacy infrastructure. You don't have any resilience built into that. So if that goes down, you are screwed. Mm. Um, and that that's a really big problem. And I think um, from... A resilience perspective something that i'm quite interested in at the moment um 
you, you need to have the basics in place before you can look at vulnerabilities that affect those systems and then fix them. And so many people don't have the basics in place and that's why they struggle to translate that and remediate it. Yeah, I mean, if, that, if you were to, what would you say the, the kind of, uh, the key things that if you if you could say to the pen testers that kind of did the report um that you received that you know the, the bad ones like what would you implore them to do differently just in case maybe some of them are listening to this podcast i don't know like what is it that you ideally want kind of summarized like in, in that kind of report that will help you and help the client from your your side of the uh from your well, perspective she, she is the client i suppose so well, that's <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah yeah um so it's not going to be the same for, for every consultancy. Um, some areas uh, shy away from the technical detail or they'll write you two separate reports and that's not necessary. Mm-hmm. You can just put it all in one report. The management summary needs to be comprehensive um, and still provide you like with a good summary of what potentially is leading to these repeated issues. So say if you've got... Um, like two years of missing windows patches call out that you've got two years of missing windows patches and you know you need to revise your patching policy um, and put something in there about the importance of patching mm. um if you've got all wasp top 10 vulnerabilities found repeatedly in an application um like call that out and say that there's a problem with your software development life cycle um that kind of thing would be incredibly useful when you do like root cause analysis on these sorts of things um, and it allows them to make improvements to business processes that are low cost behind the scenes um, you know give your developers a little bit of training on secure coding for example and then maybe what they produce will be better and you'll be in a better position in the future and not be paying for pen tests that basically say the same thing and then having to then also pay to have remedial work done alongside all of the project work that you're doing like it's easier to build it right the first time than it is to go back and fix it i think um yeah, so that's that an really interesting useful. one as well. Because like, again, I, I just bring it back to Monzo, like, and the difference there that I'd imagine. See, from a development standpoint, which isn't an area I know anything about whatsoever, but see the idea rather than taking an old style bank with old style policies, you know, and processes, um, and then shoehoring a uh, shoehoring. Okay, that's shoehoring. Right. <laughs> cut that out. <laughs> No, no that that staying stay. in. That, that, that would definitely <laughs> stay. Um, That's what she said. Like, rather than shoehoring, like what is it? Andrew twelve. Again, Shoe horning. Shoe horning. Thank you. Yes, like that. <laughs> I'm not going to try again. Like rather than yeah, doing that into like I've completely fucked up. Like I completely. <laughs> People uh, try and wrap security around afterwards retroactively yes, as a you, perimeter but... <laughs> control because we don't focus enough on defense in depth. So we don't build secure applications and make sure that we're patching and make sure that we segment networks properly. We just um, deploy some firewalls and hope that they're good enough to protect us. And then, yeah. you know, people don't audit the firewall rules. They're basically like they've got a flat network. Um and your your controls are basically non-existent because you didn't go for a defense in depth approach you didn't bake security in you tried to wrap it around afterwards and it yep. didn't work um it's much easier to build something securely the first time and quicker and cheaper for the business than it is to then go back and fix it afterwards um you yeah, can avoid right. millions of pounds in, in project costs um to say deploy a new vulnerability scanner and a vulnerability management process after that um like if you just do it right in the first place Yep, I can imagine that to be the case. Yeah, uh, 100%. 
So what, um, I suppose, move it into kind of other kind of parts of kind of the infosec world um, or security in general, and not just infosec, but uh, what, is there anything going on in the industry just now that has you kind of excited or you're super interested in maybe within the last year, um, just in general terms? like. Oh, there's a lot going on, to be fair. Um, yeah. I probably couldn't pinpoint one thing, but... Um, I'm going to talk about Security Queens um, this time. It's a time. Yeah, so um, I really, really love conferences. Um, ordinarily, we'd go to a handful of those a year, um, but COVID's kind of uh, kicked that straight in the can this year. I know. It's so bad. Um, we'll see each other soon. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, so besides London last year, um, I was at the... Um, the pub the night before for like the pre-drinks um and i met a girl in the bathroom uh sarah and i just assumed that she was just a girl in the pub i didn't think that she was there for the conference because it, it wasn't common still to see other women in security mm-hmm. um and she asked if i was there for the conference and then i kind of squealed and was like oh my god are you here for the conference <laughs> um and she told me she was giving a, a talk the next day um and i said i would go to it so i made a note on my phone because i didn't want to forget and i was drunk and then the next day I went to her talk. Um, it was brilliant. She was talking about um, mobile dangers um, for, for Android users specifically, because she really likes um, mobile security, Android security and hardware. Um, and mm-hmm. Andy actually mentored her for that talk. So they knew each other already. Um, and Andy and I didn't know each other very well at that time. And then um, after the conference um, at the after party, that's where I met Sophia, who was at university with Sarah and in London at the time for her placement year. Um, and we kind of had that like drunk girl bonding moment and made a group chat and then I hassled them endlessly and we became the security queens and uh, bonded. We just sort of needed a bit of support because you don't really know a lot of other women, especially your own age in this industry. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of evolved and we had some shared interests, but all have like quite different specialisms at the same time. Um, like I think of myself as a lot more of a generalist. Um, Sophia's pretty deep into pen testing. Um, and Sarah focuses on, um, again, like Android hardware, mobile security stuff. Mm. Um, but she's getting into pen testing now as well. Um, and uh, because of that, people kind of asked us a few times, like, would you give a conference talk? Um, and we thought about it and we decided that we'd really love to do that. But then COVID hit and we still wanted to be able to connect with the security community um, and the industry. So we started a blog. Um, we weren't really that sure that anybody would read it at first. Um, it was just kind of a way to keep ourselves busy, motivated through lockdown um, and sort of keep our um, our hand in with, uh, with security research and stuff in our free time until we could get back to conferences and then think about giving a talk. Um, and it went pretty well, to be fair. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's quite a few people that read it. Um, we have a, a Twitter account that has like 1,700 followers now, which is nice. Yeah, that's um, good. Yeah. Um, we're also on like Instagram and LinkedIn as well. Um, and we have a YouTube channel where we're going to start posting videos when we give talks, which will be nice. Um, and it's just a really like nice collaboration platform, really. Like the entire point is to support other people that are kind of like us and trying to get into the industry. And I personally write a lot of stuff for my friends that are completely non-technical that, that don't work in security and maybe don't know about it. So I write things about like different kinds of fraud, um, romance scams, what a sextortion email is um and then like 
also some really fundamental technical pieces that a lot of people probably know already but like the difference um between like binary hexadecimal base 64 that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. um and comparing it to like the standard base 10 numerical system that everybody knows already um Oh, and uh, I did one on uh, subnetting IPv4 as well, which I really quite liked. That was one of my favorite ones. Um, and then we started giving talks recently. So we did a, an analysis of the Garmin um, wasted locker ransomware attack. Um, and we did, delivered that remotely to Abitur Hackers a few weeks back. And then again at DC Leeds, I think it's 441. One, 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 no, 151. One. That's Glasgow, isn't it? 44. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Technically speaking, UK, it would be four four one five one, but Leeds are fucking idiots. Uh, sorry. No, 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 but listen to me. UK UK DEFCON groups should be four four because it's the it's the calling code. But for some reason, they've called one five one. Technically speaking, one five one will be a, a zip code in in uh, the states. There's a couple of other DEFCON groups in the UK that have done the same. So Leeds are not alone in this. Don't, mm. don't at me. Yeah, fuck, really fucking at me, absolutely. They're nice people. <laughs> Not having that. No. Uh, I, love, I, love the, I love the guys that run Leeds. They're they're great, great guys. Uh-huh. Yeah, backpedaling now, aren't you? Yeah. Lots time for them. Lots time. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm really excited about things like that. Like I've seen other people who have like launched blogs and things because um, they've, they've DM, DM'd us on Twitter and said like, "Oh, thank you so much because you guys posting your blog has given me the confidence that I needed to start mine." And I'm yeah. absolutely all for that. I think it's lovely. Um, and we're really 100%. just here to support other people in the industry, like as much as we can. Yeah, no, that's it. And I think as well, like over, uh, or just in general, a blog, and I've, I've not got one myself. It's something I'm definitely kind of wanting to do. But um, mm. I just I feel like I don't quite have the time yet to commit. Yeah. Or the ability to give across something either new or you know it's something valuable like i'm not just there yet in my career but for people like yourself i absolutely can because i've I, I, whenever you put one out uh, a new blog I'm, i always jump on and have a little read so it tend to yeah. be something that i've only had a little read on, uh, i only know a little bit about and it's always summarized in such a way uh, that i can kind of you, you can you know, over your coffee in the morning you can have a read of it and you walk away knowing something that you didn't and that's the exact kind of blog that i'm into but i definitely want to start one myself and there's a seems to be such a big value and like so if you have, if you go to a job interview like and someone wants to know what you've been doing like see the ability to literally hand that work over and say yeah in my spare time like here's what i've got and then you know if that's something that's like easily understandable digestible i think there's something you do on your blog that i really like you've got a kind of rating system as well oh uh, yeah i think that's a really nice touch because sometimes you'll look at something and you might uh, in a blog and you'll be like man i don't understand a bit of that and if someone else had put down a rating system it might be like a five out of five difficulty or something like so it's it's nice going into it to see what kind of level of the stuff you're learning um so yeah i'm one of these people that take value away from it um what kind of personal value do you get out of kind of doing the blog is it good to just keep your mind ticking over and good to have a kind of record of you know the, the stuff you've been researching yeah absolutely um thank you by the way that's really nice um it's my pleasure yeah so i'm like super extroverted um bit of a handful probably really (laughs) love conferences like going out like seeing my friends that kind of thing and couldn't do that when lockdown hit and it was really really tough at first so like i live by myself um i moved here like three months before covid um to be nearer to work because i'd started um and i'd been commuting for a few months um so i just wanted to get a bit of time back and see friends and, and things um and then suddenly I was kind of stuck inside, um, constantly just like thinking and I needed something to occupy myself. And I just thought, 
like if not for that like for like blogs and like um discord and and being able to go to like virtual events and things sometimes i think i would have just been too bored um Mm. it it has been a a bit of a rough time for quite a lot of people for sure Um, but the value that i get out of it personally is like so the the ipv4 subnetting post for example i went to some hacking training um with university um it was an external provider because they basically had to cancel courses there was academic strikes and then covid and they just couldn't deliver it so we we did this training and one of the instructors tried to explain subnetting to us but it's one of these things it comes up in pretty much every course that you'll do externally mm-hmm. and they always explain it in a way that confuses people so that they unlearn it basically <laughs> and um I'll, I'll understand subnetting and then someone will tell me something about it um, and they'll just word it in a strange way. And I'll be like, no, that's not how it works, is it? And then suddenly my mind is blank and I don't get it anymore. And the rest of what they say doesn't make sense to me. So, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah it's the same kind of thing. So when I, I wrote that initially, um, it was sort of to cement my knowledge and have a bit of a cheat sheet there for myself so that if it came up again, I could read that, remind myself how it worked in an explanation that I could understand. Um and I just kind of wanted to get at a high level, the basics of it down. Mm-hmm. So it's got um, a link to the binary post that I'd written. Um, and then it breaks down class A, B and C um, IPv4 addresses and then Oops. explains like what side annotation is and stuff like that. <laughs> no drugs, no crime. Um, <laughs> and I, I just I basically wrote that one for myself. Um, but some really lovely people um, gave us feedback on that and said, this is something that I didn't understand, or this is a really useful breakdown if you're doing any network plus studying or anything. Mm. And I hadn't expected it to add as much value as it did. So that was really rewarding and quite lovely. Um, so yeah, I, I get a lot out of it. I, I really enjoy that. Yeah, no, that is great. And the, the thing is as well, for every blog post that you put out, that's potentially a mini talk there. Like you've done the research like, and you've even worded it in ways that would probably read really well if it was read, you know, in person at a talk. Like, There's so much value that can come from it and I very much hope that I can get the time to get started uh, doing it myself. What about yourself, Andy? You obviously blog. Um, uh, what, it's just a, can you echo the same kind of thing, the same kind of uh, personal value? Yeah, I think, I mean, I've written a blog now for a while. Um, it's kind of the backbone of, I suppose, the contributions I give to the industry is what I do in my blog. Mm-hmm. But it, it it's it, it remarkable on multiple levels. I mean, I've been at numerous conferences throughout my career and the amount of people that come up to me and say, your blog's really helped me or your book's really helped me get into the industry or whatever else, it's timeless. I mean, it always makes me smile. And it often, I, I mean, Morgan's given me pep talk time and time again where I, I have imposter syndrome and I go, well, I'm not great. And she's like, no, you're, you're doing really well. You're, um, you're, you're, you're doing good. You're doing good, mm-hmm. kiddo. Doing good. <laughs> um, but no, it's it, it, like from, from a learning perspective, having a blog is excellent. I wouldn't say it's the, why well, I used to always say to people, do a blog, write a blog. It's really important. But as I've learned recently, Everyone learns in a different way, and some people just don't gel well with writing things, and that's that's fine. I mean, there are multiple other ways to do things. You can do talks, you can do whatever else. Um, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, uh, writing a blog is useful for multiple reasons. It's useful because you learn as an individual when you're writing about things, because the age-old statement of those that can't do teach is fucking fundamentally broken. It's those that understand better teach. Because yep. realistically, um, in order to teach something, you need to understand it inside out to teach it to somebody else. And I find mm-hmm. that the more that I write about things, the, the more that I understand about a topic. 
this came up in conversation today actually with one of my colleagues. Um, so there are male technologies uh, for protections. There's SPF, DKIM and DMARC and they're used to prevent things like phishing and spam emails. Now, probably before before I started writing about it, I understood a little bit about it, but um, one of my colleagues went, why don't you write about that? Like, it comes up a lot in red teams, it comes up a lot in blue teams, it comes up in defensive and offensive security. Um, why don't you deep dive it? And it's one of the things that I really enjoy, deep, di- deep, deep diving topics. Um, so I, I wrote about SPF, which is Sender Policy Framework. I wrote about DKIM, which is Domain Key Identified Mail. And I wrote about DMARC, which is something else. Uh, yeah, I can't remember what it stands for. I'm pretty shit at acronyms, <laughs> but I got I got two out of three. It's pretty, pretty good going. <laughs> but as a result, I learned a lot about them. So like SPF is there to verify which hosts can send emails on behalf. So it will be a DNS entry that says um, this third party or this IP address can send mail on behalf of the domain. So the domain might be widgetcast.com. And in our SPF record, we might have uh, fuzz.sh, which is Dave's domain, or zsec.uk, which is Andy's domain, that can send mail on behalf of Widgetcast. Mm-hmm. And then in conjunction with that, you'd have DKIM, which is like a key that you have um, to verify the domain is what it says it is. And then what DMARC does is DMARC sits in the middle and verifies that uh, DKIM is correct and SPF is correct. So if you don't, if you have SPF configured and DMARC configured but not DKIM, um, SPF technically isn't enforced because you're, you're, you've got nothing to back up the key and vice versa. So if you've got SPF and DKIM configured but not DMARC, um, they're not being enforced in conjunction. So, yeah, a little little off, off-piece off technical discussion there. But mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. But, um, it's uh, something I've learned a lot about by, by writing about things. So it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you say, like a big part of that comes from, and I know new lines was kind of the same, but uh, is uh, originally spawns from the need for you to learn something so that you can understand it and you have to take notes and then you basically just kind of publish a more polished version online because uh, I've seen your Evernote and <laughs> the list of, kind of <laughs> ongoing no. blogs um, so probably see uh, my you, you don't want to see my drafts I've got I mean my, my Evernote's well, bad right, but yeah. my, my drafts is insane um, actually the previous guest we had on uh this is the unofficial announcement. He's a guest guest writer on my blog. Uh, he, I gave him access to my blog recently, and he's writing writing a few interesting posts. But he was like, "Fucking hell, dude! You write a lot of blogs." I'm like, "Yeah, they're all in drafts." And he's like, "I saw that one about introduction to cloud." I'm like, "Fuck the cloud! It's just somebody else's computer." Fuck it. Hi. Yeah, yeah, but I, I mean, true, I was getting, but I was getting to know. some. I was getting to a good point. Ah, oh, fine, fine, fine. I was gonna say, "Fuck the cloud! It's someone else's computer." However, sometimes I need to learn about it. And it's really important. And Morgan loves the cloud. Good segue. Morgan, cloud. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> we went is to that this, all you're uh, giving her? Like the word cloud? Like, just, just cloud. Like. <laughs> the floor is yours, <laughs> cloud. I'm there, it's fine. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I After I finished that grad scheme, I think we segued, you know, and I didn't finish that. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> they were moving um, a lot of their infrastructure to the cloud, um, as I kind of alluded to earlier. And... Um, I did a little bit of cloud training. Um, I actually trained up to security specialist level, um, but I only did my first exam and I was kind of going to get to the rest. Um, moved into a cloud ops role. Um, I was sort of split between the team that was deploying the infrastructure and like designing it all, which was the project team. And then the um, operational team, which was like monitoring and supporting it. Um, so half of that was kind of like reviewing um, design documents and approving change requests and just kind of making sure that things didn't fall over. Um, and then the other half was like bringing it back up if it did fall over, um, reviewing builds and, and standards and things like that. And they worked in completely different ways, which is really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. One team was really agile and the other one was not. Um, 
so yeah um I did that for a few months before I moved into my current security consultancy role um and I just really love the cloud I think it's awesome it's so easy it like gamifies it almost um with everything being virtualized uh really really cool What's your favorite? All right, there you go. Fucking. Oh my god. I was just going to say, what are your key, what, what are your uh, what what's the kind of uh, key elements of cloud computing versus the kind of traditional sense that help in the kind of role uh, that you're in? Uh, is it just the t- kind of? It's not a responsibility that's taken away. It's just well. Yeah. You know, I'll let you explain it. What's the advantages of cloud computing over your know, traditional uh, network? Um, so I don't actually uh, really use it right now, um, but I want to get back into it. So I'm actually studying AWS at the moment. I'm going to take an exam probably this week. Um, I'm Good really luck. quite looking forward to that. Thank you. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, but um, basically, there's just loads of documentation about this online. And actually, we went to a talk at Security. Oh, it was this year, actually. Um, and Paco Hope gave a talk. So I think he actually works for AWS. Um, and it was the closing keynote, I believe. Yep, it was. Uh, he was in a unicorn onesie um, and he was talking about the benefits <laughs> of uh, cloud infrastructure um, and effectively the biggest selling point that you have um, because it's a, a shared responsibility model. Um, Amazon do a lot of the maintenance for you. Um, so depending on um, whether you're using um, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service or software as a service, um, the things that you're required to do to, to secure a system um, change completely. So in some scenarios, you'll be responsible for patching um, and like all the way down to physical security. Um, and then in, in other scenarios, um, you don't even need to worry about physical security. Like You don't even know where the data center is. You just um, pick a region um, mm-hmm. and spin up some instances and like virtually everything from server side upwards is yours. Um, so yeah, I think that's really cool. Um, and it saves you a lot of cost from an infrastructure management perspective, but then you kind of have that cost translated to um, basically what is a subscription service to use somebody else's data center. Um, yeah. So yeah, cloud is and just And changes in risk computer. as well, I guess, as well. Like, in the sense of like you're yeah. relying on a third party being able to reliably provide the service that you're kind of mm. <laughs> renting and what yeah. happens if that company disappears or they get ransomware uh, you know mm. i'd imagine it's quite 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 a different kind of scenario different things to think about yeah so operational resilience is a really really key selling point for using cloud if you architect it properly um there's this tenet of the um well-architected framework um resilience reliability um you you can architect things to be highly available. So um, AWS Lambda, uh, you can effectively write a Lambda script that will um, spin up a copy of um, one of your servers if it goes down. So if your EC2 dies for some reason or like hits an error um, and just stops responding or it pauses, um, you'll have another one up within like half an hour so that your customers don't experience, um, um, I guess, service issues. Mm. Um, And you can also uh, deploy... Um, multiple copies of a server and have like load balances sit in front of them um, as standard but it's really easy to do that you don't have to like buy extra hardware and then provision that and then find space in a rack for it and and stuff Um, cable management Andy what is that what Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've seen pictures of his desk cable management's fucking class yeah. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so it's really cool. And um, there's actually things that you can turn on like auto scaling. So I saw this really, really cool um, case study when I was learning about AWS the first time round, where there was a medical supply company who were running a conference and um, 
I think it was like the day or two days before the conference or something, they used AWS um, years ago this. And they were hit with a DDoS attack. Um, and ordinarily it would have taken their site down, but they worked with AWS um, and basically decided that they would just scale up all of their infrastructure to see what AWS could handle from that respect um, and just absorbed all of the traffic. Okay, um, that's interesting. Yeah, so they just kept scaling it so that they had more like servers available to um, make sure that the, the website was still up and, and whatnot. Um, and um, they didn't scale them back down. So ordinarily, if the, the traffic drops below a certain level, um, it'll kill a couple, of your serv- a couple of your servers or it'll um, deploy smaller instance sizes or something instead um, because you don't need to be paying for servers that are a larger size and more of them if, you're not, um, if the demand isn't there, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, IT economics. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they basically just scaled it up and didn't scale it back down and then they decided to split the bill at the end. But... That was a, a really big win because they were just able to absorb the entire attack pretty much. Um, the, the customers didn't notice any uh, service interruption. Um, the conference that they ran, um, the medical supply conference, like sales pitch, I guess, uh, went ahead um, as planned, completely uninterrupted. Um, so that was like a, a real success story. So AWS can be really, really cool. Um, yeah, for cloud, sure. Cloud generally can like be. You say, traditionally, that might not have been the same situation. It would have just been site down, yeah. everybody go home, yeah. right? But having that kind of versatility and that kind of computing power, you know, yeah. in the cloud, um, being also, I guess, ran by probably super technical people that really know what they're doing. Yeah, that, that, their yeah, massive um, boon, like, for security services companies. offering is pretty crazy. Um, I would definitely recommend having a look into it if you're interested. Um, it's pretty easy to get to grips with and there's loads of free tra- training and material available for it. So AWS will let you um, learn about the basics. There's a, a free six-hour online course on AWS.training, I think, or training.aws. I think it's .training. Anyway, um, there's a free mm-hmm. course there that will teach you about the basics. It'll go over the um, uh, shared responsibility model, um, and I think it covers a little bit about the well-architected framework as well. So it, it kind of sells you all that stuff anyway. But from an operational resilience perspective, it's so interesting. Um, I went to the AWS Summit at the beginning of 2019 in London at the XL. Um like a bit traumatizing actually getting there i got rained on my train was three hours late i got stuck oh, no. at canning town for two hours Shit. it was pretty <laughs> naff and then i got there and there was twelve thousand men there and they all stood on me and it was a bit naff but yeah. it was it was really cool um and the talks were awesome i went to this one that was called creating resiliency through destruction um and that's probably one of the best talks i've ever seen um and now i kind of want to be a chaos engineer eventually <laughs> um and I, I didn't know what chaos engineering was before that talk um but it's effectively uh, you architect um cloud infrastructure to be highly available um, and operationally resilient and then you unleash a program on it or write some scripts that will randomly just shoot one of your servers and kill it and take it down um and see what it does to your your services and I guess, what your customers experience at the other end. Um, so if you've architected it well enough, they won't notice and things will keep working as they should. Is that yeah, where the term cool. Chaos Monkey was born? And that's what the software is called, yeah. So Chaos Monkey is uh, a program that shoots EC2s randomly. And as a result, Entry Monkey <laughs> was also born because entropy means chaos. It's the measure of disorder in a system, but I'll let you have it anyway. All right, okay, shit. <laughs> <laughs> mic drop like speaking of talks because uh we kind of we obviously talked about sequins but like uh, i just want to kind of take it back to uh, you you've got a garmin you did a talk was it garmin waste yeah. locker uh ransomware we have talked about that just just saying did we, we talk about, about it earlier on yeah we chatted about it earlier on. no i just kind of mentioned it a little bit 
Yeah, it was just, yeah, it was good. Would you like to give us a winning talk on that? Uh, Is that... Right, right now? Yeah. Like, very uh, Um, summarised? Yeah, okay. Um, So, like, July, I think it was the 23rd or something like that of July, um, Garmin posted a tweet uh, saying that they were having an unexplained outage, um, tried to then pass it off as a maintenance window afterwards, um, they were like furious users, really annoyed that they couldn't upload their runs to Strava. Um, and then afterwards they, they so they, they gave it a good two days of trying to say it was a maintenance window, but their employees basically went on Reddit, um, and, and told a bunch of people that they'd been ransomware. So there was kind of whispers on the underground, like information security threat intel network, I guess, um, saying that they'd been ransomware with wasted locker. And then a day or two later, um, somebody got confirmation that they'd paid the ransom and received a decryptor. Um, so they paid 10 million, I think it was $10 million. Um, I can never remember if it's dollars or pounds. I get them mixed up all the time. But I think it was dollars um, to, to receive this decryptor. Lot, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was like a, a rescue package or something, basically. Um, and what had effectively happened was somebody had visited a, a compromised page. It might have been a fish. It might have just happened organically. Um and they downloaded a dodgy JavaScript file that looked like um, a Chrome plugin that downloaded another couple of dodgy JavaScript files. Um, and then that basically, um, it used uh, wscript.exe, I think it's called, um, to uh, install a C2 beacon, a Cobalt Strike uh, beacon. And then they used that to deploy ransomware. It proliferated really quickly. It spread like across the entire network. Um, so it didn't just take down um, the Garmin running app, um, which I can't remember the name of for the life of me now. Um, it also hit Fly Garmin, which is used by pilots um, for like flight manifestos and tracking and GPS and whatnot. Um, they're also active in the defense sector, um, maritime and automotive sectors, um, and they're used in hospitals as well. Yeah. Um, so it was really, really huge, massive, hit, massive, massive hit to um, critical national infrastructure, which is now regulated by the NIS directive. Um, so it was quite a big deal. Um, and it, I described it as a, a multiple control failure because they really shouldn't have been in that kind of situation where, where it was it hit them that hard in the first place. Um, the, the comments on Reddit were pretty savage. Um, people were not impressed um, at the state of what their, their backups must have been like. Um, but as I said to them, um, we kind of had some questions after the talk and discussed this. Um, what the likelihood is, um, and there's, there's two things you need to consider here, is that um, before this kind of attack, usually an attacker will infiltrate a network and establish enough presence um, that the backups aren't viable. So with disaster recovery, you have something called a recovery time objective and a recovery point objective. A recovery time objective is the maximum amount of time that you can tolerate a service interruption or your systems being down for. And a recovery point objective is the point that you would roll back to. Um, so from a data loss perspective, what can you tolerate? And for some places, it's a maximum of 24 hours. Um, and obviously with them having a cobalt strike beacon in there beforehand, before they deployed the malware, uh, ransomware mm-hmm. even, um, they'd obviously established a bit of persistence. So the backups probably weren't viable. Um, they probably just had to sit on the network for a week or two, uh, but probably could have done for much longer. And the other part of it is the network probably wasn't segmented um, very well, if at all. Um, a lot of organizations kind of start off really small. They have like a network that's built to maybe support a couple of hundred end users and devices. Um, and it grows and grows. And instead of re-architecting it because they're not able to and they can't afford the downtime, they just kind of bolt extra pieces on. Mm. 
network architecture is really complicated in that respect. So um, because it spread so quickly and so widely and affected such a variety of systems, um, I was kind of, uh, I don't know, I was a bit disappointed, really. Um, it, I, th I thought it demonstrated really easily that it was uh, a failure of multiple controls, so no network segmentation. Uh, endpoint security was pretty poor because they should have picked up um, the, the mechanisms that the attackers use because Cobalt Strike is not new. It's yeah. like pretty... Um, widely regarded as like a, a common c2 framework that most pen testers will have used um and uh kind of you know other i guess um so like phishing protection that andy just kind of talked about there um that probably would have helped them as well if, if the initial um entry vector was a fish not organically um visiting a compromised website um and then it's just kind of standard risk management procedures like developing a good security culture it's a top-down approach and investment in those kinds of controls would have put them in a better position to deal with this sort of thing but it shouldn't have affected as many systems as it did um no. but given the fact that the, the backups probably weren't viable um and that it had hit pretty much every service they had they didn't really have any choice but to pay the ransom so whoever it was at the other end of that that found themselves kind of neck deep in it handled it really well um, you know, they paid the ransom, they decided that that was what they needed to do. Luckily, they'd been hit with um, Evil Corp ransomware rather than Maze ransomware because Maze have recently, like this year specifically, have um, they've hit a bunch of organizations with like this two pronged attack where they'll exfiltrate all of the, the victim data, I guess. Yep. And then they'll ransom other systems. Um, so you pay for a decryptor to kind of restore services. And then you'll also pay to have them delete your data so that they don't post it on the dark web. So they were Jeez. kind of lucky, actually, that it was Evil Corp and not um, Maze. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it wasn't a, wasn't good. But because of the size of Garmin um, and the, the uh, sectors that they function in, I wasn't aware of the size of, of their operations, I guess, before I looked into that. Um, and I just didn't expect it. Um, but you never do, I guess. Like, there's, there's always a, a huge company that, that gets attacked, and you're kind of like, wow, they were in pretty bad shape. But for so many different set, you know, segments of their company, like um, and divisions, like, and for it all to get hit, like you say, like that does just kind of. It, it, I can't imagine the, a modern network architect would design a network that way. Andy, I've, I, I mean, I'm not remotely qualified to kind of talk no, about that. No, you'd, <laughs> you'd be very surprised, Dave. Uh, even, yeah. I think the, the the Garmin example is a prime, uh, prime example of why the cloud is probably a good replacement for that kind of setup mm -hmm. because of the backups and things. So, I mean, the, obviously the, the Garmin attack is a, as Morgan said correctly, is a failing of multiple security controls and probably multiple policy and procedural controls as well. Um, having, I suppose, cloud infrastructure in place would allow you to have off-site backups. You'd be, um, even if the attacker was on the network, you'd have off-account like account backups, I suppose. The caveat that, to that would be if they compromised like, the root uh, identity access management account or something similar. Check me, we're reading about cloud and all that stuff. Um, but like, yeah. Um, you should turn on 2FA for your uh, your root account and you shouldn't use it for anything other than billing. Just I FYI. Mean, I mean, you should never use root <laughs> for anything list. anyway. I mean, if, you, if you're if you're rolling with root all the time, you're uh, you're totally running with scissors. It's uh, That's in, in the AWS training. They're like, don't use root. Yeah. Use I am. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's the same in, in just sysadmining in general. I, of, I mean, mm -hmm. we're chatting earlier on about blog posts. They've got a blog post in the wings of why you should never run a VPS as root and why you should learn how, to, like, you should install um, 
there's a there's a tool called Molly Guard, which is really good. So what Molly Guard does uh, on a bit, bit of a segue here, but anyway, uh, on a on a Linux based system is um, if you type reboot in the wrong window, it will ask you for the host name of the machine that you're rebooting, which is incredibly useful on servers when you're like three fucking SSH sessions deep and you reboot the wrong machine. There's been so many times that I've locked myself, like I've, I've basically turned um, IP tables on, blocked myself out of SSH. So I'm like, oh, just deny all connections, forgetting to allow the already established connections. <laughs> reboot the machine and lock myself out um, oh which is just hell how long have you been doing this now like 15 uh, years I've been doing I've been doing IT for the last 17 years or something professionally what about labor laws in Scotland yeah they don't exist um, but <laughs> But like to, to kind of stack matters up even more hilariously, the, the day after I was like, oh yeah, it's fine. I'll, I'll install this. I won't reboot the fucking machine. I I tried to remove the binary, uh, doing an rm rf, which is a totally fine command normally if you get the correct command. So rm is remove the file. Dash rf is recursive and forced, so they won't prompt you. Um, I I I deleted the root directory. And uh, had a great time because I had no backups. So it's uh, it's the story of thirds. Don't fuck it up, basically. And back your shit up. <laughs> and back yeah. your shit up. Yeah. But again, like if if your backups need to be from within the last forty eight hours, um, and your cold store, like your process doesn't allow you to have um backups that fresh in cold storage, um, or again the attacker just you know waits on your network long enough, um, or like corrupts your backups or something. Like it, mm. it doesn't really make a difference. You can you can back up everything that you want, but it's not always going to help. Um, that's why multiple controls are important here. Backups aren't going to save you from ransomware. Yeah. They're not, they're not going to save you from evil people. I mean, they've been described as professionally evil multiple times, and I love it. It's great. <laughs> Difference between yeah, let's talk about Honeypock 2.0 while we're on <laughs> you being evil. Oh, yeah, evil. It's yeah. fun. This is uh, probably how the many perfect watch time. You on now? How many How many watch lists? I just collect them now. It's like Pokemon cards. <laughs> Challenge got... coins for, for yeah. watch lists. Um, Honeypock 2.0. Um, we have previously <laughs> talked about the first iteration by our yep. version. Andy, tell us about Honeypock and tell me about the the fallout of of what you've done. <laughs> so so those of you who follow me on Twitter and those of you who probably listen to the podcast know that I'm a massive fucking troll most of the time. And I get roasted for it, so that's what that is. Um, round about July, um, there was a vulnerability in DNS in Windows, which was CVE, CVE 2020-1350, um, if, if we're counting numbers. Um, and that was a pretty, pretty significant vulnerability in Windows called SIGRED. Uh, got a lot of um, attention, and I thought, fuck it, what if I create a fake POC? Um, so I created okay. a fake POC. Um, none of this is the first in round, so I created a fake no. POC. Can we just discuss what your motivation for doing that was when you've explained this? That's yeah, yeah, we'll get question. there in a second. We'll get there. It's part of the, the <laughs> fucking... Hold on, right? Buckle up, bitches. Buckle up. Um, so yeah, created fake POC, and it got a little bit of traction, around about a million hits in like a month, so quite quite a lot of traction. Uh, and I, I I pissed off quite a lot of people. Quite a lot of people got a little bit cross with me, uh, including the National Security Agency in America and the GRU in Russia. They were a little bit upset as well. So a lot of people got a bit upset about things. So I've parked that there. It's a research topic. It's it's ongoing. I get hits, about 1,500 hits a day now, on average, on from the one in July. 
Um, so I've got I've got a mailbox set up for that and everything else. It's a lot of fun. So um, me and my un, undefined wisdom uh, de- decided that there was a, a bunch of vulnerabilities that came out on Windows last week, I think, or the week before. Um, I don't know the CVE numbers, but there's like fucking loads of them. Like four of them came out at the same time. So there's one in SharePoint, one in Outlook, one in IPv6, and one of them in just Windows in general, so remote code execution. And Kevin Beaumont, a guy who works for Microsoft, tweets a lot. Um, equally shit posts just as just about as much as me, maybe not quite quite to the extent, but still um, was chatting about uh, the research that he was doing on the um, attacks he was seeing on on honeypots online, and he said he, he linked my blog post from Honeypock 1.0 and went uh, or Honeypock the, the first original and he went oh yeah it won't be long before fucking people release fake POCs, and then he DMs me going have you fucking released a fake POC and I'm like nah nah not um, not yet. <laughs> he was like, not yet, Andy. I'm like, oh, just just wait. And like two minutes later, I was like, so that's it, done now. Um, and it's got, it's got canary tokens in it and everything else. He was like, you fucking, you you did what? And I'm like, yeah, it's it's there. So I sent him the link and he was like, oh, shit. Okay, cool. Um, so for those of you who maybe haven't heard about the first one, um, the first one had what are called canary tokens. So what a canary token is, it is a like a seed in a binary or a file or a PDF that calls out, uh, so it makes a DNS request out to a URL, so unique URL. When that unique URL gets a hit, um, I get an email or it it triggers a service service site and it sends an email saying you've had a hit from this IP address at this time and this location. Um, So it bases the location on the IP address. Uh, So why you would do this typically is to detect potential threats or potential breaches, that sort of thing. So I embedded three canary tokens. um, Sorry, sorry, embedded embedded two in the first one and three in the second one. So five five canary tokens in total um, over two two projects. So I uploaded it so I could work out um, a DNS request, an HTTP request, and I think just a binary run request. So you could work out who runs the binary, when they fucking open the file, and um, if they if they can't make a web request, if, if they can resolve DNS. So I did that, and um, within the first 20 minutes, it had 100 runs of the binary, which proves that people will download any fucking code. So, <laughs> so bearing in mind, this this is a this is a Git, Git repository with a readme in fucking huge layers that says, this is an educational exercise, do not run. And underneath mm-hmm. it, it says, this is a lesson as to why you shouldn't run random binaries on the internet with a link to the previous blog post. Now, <laughs> um, if that isn't enough warning, uh, bearing in mind this is in fucking like size 72 fonts, so it's fucking huge, you can't miss it. <laughs> People still downloaded the binary and ran it, like no, no, fu- no fucks given, whatever. So that was fine. Um, but to make matters even more hilarious, the first time around it got a lot of um, coverage because it was the first POC to reach market and um, it hit a lot of threat intelligence feeds. The second time around, I got fucking emails and phone calls from people going, you fucking ruined my day. And I was like, well, sucks to be you fucking submitting false POCs as legitimate um, like indi- indicators of compromise. Um, and I was chatting to one of my mates, one of my good friends who works for a foreign government uh, in their threat intelligence uh, department. And he was like, Andy, um, what have you done? I was like, oh, I just released the binary again. He's like, yeah, but what's in the fucking binary? And it's just command prompt with canary tokens. He's like, all right, thank fuck. I was like, why? He went, well, um, uh, threat intelligence company X, can't, uh, can't talk about threat, big threat intelligence company have sent us this POC and have said it's malicious. I was like, nah, it's not malicious. It makes a canary token request. He went, yeah, but it makes a web request, right? I'm like, yeah, but that's that's fine. Uh, and he's like, okay, cool. So they ran it through VirusTotal. So 
from me, from, from the point in which I uploaded that to GitHub, it took seven minutes to get to Virus Total. Somebody fucking downloaded and uploaded the Virus Total straight away, thinking, "Oh, this is malicious because it makes a canary token." So those that are un- uninformed. So yeah, it was fun. The reasoning behind it, just fucking having a laugh. Um, the outcome from it, <laughs> fucking fucking up threat intelligence feeds one random binary at a time. And I got a message from someone a couple of days later saying that their professional threat intelligence internal um, division had submitted my POC as a valid proof of concept. Now, what that proves straight up, I mean, there's a few things that have come off the back of it, but what that proves straight up is threat intelligence companies are pulling random things from GitHub and going, this is legitimate threat intelligence. And it begs the question, what le- what legitimate, in inverted commas, intelligence are your companies feeding you? Um, or your threat intelligence companies feeding you that you're paying hundreds of thousands of pounds, dollars, yen, whatever, a year to get to, you're getting fuck all out of it, or you might be getting fuck fuck all out of it. So that's funny. Um, or in addition to that, so I've got a lot of friends around the globe. I, I'm a gobshite on the internet, so I speak to a lot of people. And uh, I got a DM from someone out of the blue who I'd not spoken to in a while. Uh, funnily enough just before the, the first POC. So uh, uh, he got in contact with me about that and they'd found an insider threat as a result of it. So what they'd done is they found that somebody was running the random binary and they'd calls through their sock to uh, canarytokens.org or whatever the canary tokens link is. But he was like, oh, um, your first POC caught uh, an insider threat. We've correlated the the link time and machine name to a second running of this new binary you've uploaded. And we found somebody who's just running random shit on their machine. Um, so they, they found an insider threat at a pretty big company in the States. Um, so this is a foreign government that's not involved in the States, but that's a different story entirely. But anyway, um, we can chat about that over beers eventually, but when COVID is blown over, but they found a, a, an insider threat at an American company. Um, in addition, uh, I've had two people in the UK and the U- and, and the EU. I suppose the UK is still the EU. Fuck off. Brexit. Right. Anyway, um, yeah, who have, have found similar correlations between the, the first POC and the second POC. Um, so my motivation behind it was, it's just a joke, just a bit of fun. But secondly, it's kind of built into a, a research project uh, in that the kind of analytics behind it are insane. Um, like I checked, when when you dropped that in chat, I checked the analytics on my site. I've had one million hits um, between the in, in the last month between the two combined. Who so would have thought your trolling and shit posting would end up helping people at such a <laughs> I was, I was gonna fundamental say talk, level? Talking shit posting. Morgan's got a story about shit posting. No, I don't. Okay, Morgan doesn't have a shit posting story. <laughs> this one time Never. on Twitter, Morgan made a tweet, and uh, Morgan's tweet got three million impressions. I think. Okay, no, I was just quoting my friend because he said something funny. It wasn't even my fault. <laughs> anyway. All right. <laughs> yeah, so Honeypot no, one, no. I was I was not impressed with. But the, I um, I was like, look, this is a vulnerability that people are genuinely scared about, and there's blue teams flapping all over the place, thinking that this is going to be how they get hit, and you've just released a massive troll to fuck with people, basically. Um, and I was not I was not impressed with that. And then you released it a second one, and I was like, oh, maybe this is genuine security research, and he's he's trying to see. Um, how many people will just run, you know, untrusted binaries and stuff on the network. Um, and that's when I kind of saw it in a new light and started to take it um, seriously in a different way. Because it is really concerning from um, a threat intel perspective, um, like how trustworthy are the, the sources that you're, you're getting this this information from? Um, mm. So, yeah, I think that the way you went about it the first time was a bit ham-fisted. 
and it pissed a lot of people off. <laughs> but the second one, um, you know, put in a, a big read me that's like, this is an educational exercise. Use at your own risk. That that's probably a bit better. Well done. Or Andy's grown. Honeypot 3.0 is going to evolve, and it'll have like a little warning that's going to be like, sack this person. <laughs> yeah, I, I got, I got, uh, I got a message from a couple of my colleagues after I released Honeypot 2.0, and they were like, "You realise you're going to be the boy who cried exploit? It's going to fucking happen. Like if you release it th- third time around." I was like, "Yeah, don't worry." They went, "You know that anytime you release legitimate research, people are not going to re- listen." I was like, "Well, fuck it. I mean, it's a laugh. If people don't <laughs> listen to legitimate research, that's their fucking problem. I'm not fucking bothered about it. So yeah, so I'm going mm, off on one. Punt. Yeah, nah, it's all good. Um, obviously, look, just looking at how long we've been running for, and uh, we're trying to keep the episodes down somewhat. But I think we've got a good solid kind of 15 minutes left that we can kind of go through Fire some through of the these questions. Other questions, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so we've got kind of a few that we generally ask from guests, but uh, just to kind of focus on just yourself for a moment mm-hmm. before we move on to those. Um, what are your kind of plans for the future? Like how, how do you see the next kind of, I don't know, 10, 15 years of your kind of career going, maybe shorter term? Have you uh, got five, kind of 10, 15. Is the, yeah. cool. oh, that's a while, isn't it? Um, maybe five. Well, that might be easier. <laughs> not, not concrete plans as such. Um, so I just really enjoy security as a whole. And mm. I like moving around and kind of learning different things and sort of um, like getting really immersed in, in different areas and kind of finding out what I like. And I'm still in that portion of my career at the minute because I've only been in this about three years. And, you know, the first like year or two was very much like, oh, you're a, you're a girl and you've got an English degree and you're not very technical, so we're not going to let you play with the boy stuff, um, <laughs> which sort of annoyed me for a while. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I want to do more technical work in the future. Um, I really, really love cloud, so I'd like to do a bit more with that. Um I really enjoy pieces of work where I get to look at um, at like a niche piece of regulation and translate that into a set of technical controls that I feed into something that adds value. Um, Mm. I just love that kind of stuff. Um, I really want to keep blogging. I'm probably going to give some conference talks. I had one set ready to go for B-Sides London this year, but then obviously that was cancelled. So I've kind of got like a half-baked post-quantum cryptography talk. um, What's the real um, title? (laughs) <laughs> no it's post-quantum cryptography <laughs> that's, that's what we're sticking with What's the not real saying title? The C- we're not saying the c word on this podcast but we've already said it earlier on i didn't say it oh that's true yeah you're effectively trying to coerce her into saying it which yeah i'm not having that nah. sod off <laughs> so yeah i'll probably do that um okay and then I, i'm really really interested um in operational resilience and chaos engineering so um, if something came up in that space, I'd really love to look at that for a little while too. Um, I'm doing a little bit of research um, at the minute for that master's degree that I mentioned. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll probably do um, a thesis on vulnerability management. And then I'd potentially look at doing a PhD if I could find one that would fit around work because I really like working in industry. I don't want to stop doing that to do research. Yeah. Um, so yeah, lo- loads of stuff that I would love to do. No concrete plans as such yet. I quite like the finance sector, but I'm kind of open to working in, in other areas as well. Um, no, keep it diverse just, yeah. and like, keep your options open. Like There's, there's so, yeah. so many options and just not enough time. So I'm sure you'll find something that will keep you ticking by. Um, yeah. And it's been super interesting here, but well, at least what you're doing at the moment. Like, there's been a bunch there that I've not really known about or even considered myself. So yeah, no, it's fucking cool. Um, so on, on to the mm-hmm. actual, the, the, the questions. of <laughs> so So, well... We've got questions that 
people have asked and we've also got questions that previous guests ask so I think it's probably if we cover the questions that people have asked first and then we'll move on to the questions that other guests have asked because I think mm-hmm. that's probably a, a good good way of doing it uh, so we asked on Twitter um, uh, fuck what did we ask on Twitter we asked on Twitter if anyone had any questions for Mormaid and Cup you came back with questions there was a few pretty existential ones but um, <laughs> yeah if we dive straight into it if your house was on fire which three <laughs> items would you leave behind or even surreptitious fucking words whatever throw into the fire uh, yeah surreptitious <laughs> fucking whatever yeah fuck it it's fucking whore chewing or surreptitiously throw into the flames when you thought no one was looking yeah whore chewing whore chewing right okay <laughs> let's do this um uh, my mum got me a really offensive present. You're going to say my mum? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no, we're not there. Um, she got me this like quite offensive present for my birthday. She got me a reproductive cycle tracker. Um, she had kids when she was younger than me, and I think she's like she started hinting at grandkids now. And I was really offended when I opened this. Um, I'm kind of mad at it still. It's been a while, and it's just sort of sitting there in the box. And I'm like, I'm never going to use that. I might hack it. I'd probably throw that into the flames. Um, mm-hmm. oh, I've got this book from uh, university. One of my housemates convinced my other housemate that this book was haunted and used to hide it around the house. <laughs> 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 so she was adamant that she couldn't keep this book and she asked me to take it um, and like look after it for her and stuff. And I, I, I said I would, but like I'm kind of averse to like destroying books or throwing them away. So I probably would burn that. don't think I've got a third one, really. Mm. Well, you keeping keeping your two book. lads. I'd, 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 oh yeah, Nicholas Cage and Enzi Harriet. Um, <laughs> got got some. Uh, oh yeah, no one said jokes. Anyway, that's that's that. I've got I some think cardboard. We can explain that one to be fair because yeah. that is quite funny. Uh, was it you that sent those, Andy? Like, <laughs> not, not both. One of my other friends not as well. So right. which one did you send? During lockdown, uh, we you were all a guess. bit bored. Yeah, it was. Enzi Harriet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Andy sent Enzi Harriet life size cutout. Uh, to Morgan here, like, um, and uh, it's hilarious looking at your webcam and just seeing <laughs> Ainsley Harriet kind of working in the background with uh, yeah. Nicholas Cage, the life size cutout, kind of also looking on. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. quite entertaining. But. And, and a Nicholas Cage face pillow, because why? Why would you not want enough Nick Cage? It's a sequin pillow as well, so it's uh, yeah. like red, and then sequence. you like you like stroke the sequins, and it changes to Nicholas Cage's face. <laughs> Fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too good. Um, what yeah. else we got here? Uh, we have. Da, da, da. What three events in your life do you want a do over on? Oh, uh, deep and deep. That's pretty deep. deep. That is deep. I don't yeah. know what a do over is. When you want to like start over, do it again. Yeah. You would do something differently. Um, uh, I'm firmly a no regrets kind of gal. For sure. Um, no regrets nah fuck that no regrets um there's not much in my life that I didn't learn something from um and that I think I would do differently if given the chance um I really enjoyed my degree but sometimes I think uh studying something technical would have put me in a better position to work in this industry and it wouldn't feel so much like I'm playing catch up all the time Mm -hmm. um so I guess that's kind of a consideration but I don't know for sure if I would do it differently uh I probably would have um dabbled a bit more in tech and got into security um more in my free time while I was studying English um if I'd known I was going to end up working in it so I might have done that and then basically all of 2020 because this year has been shit 
no. horrible. <laughs> can we so, throw 2020 yeah. in the fire? Yeah, we can. That's oh, going to be the sure. third thing. Yeah. Nicholas and Ensley can stay. 2020 is going yeah. in the flames. I think that's fair. So, surreptitious that fucking, yep. Surreptitious. Why are you thing. trying again, dude? Like, <laughs> just, just really bad at words. <laughs> just really bad at words. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, English, I'm definitely English is not my first language, all right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm the same. I'm not really too much of a uh, kind of a regrets kind of guy. I think you learn from you learn from everything that you do. Um, so I, I can appreciate that it's a difficult one to answer. Um, mm. I suppose I can ask you, Dave. Been, what, what's, hmm? what, what are the three events in your life that you would have a do-over on? I don't really have any. Like, because... Um, yeah, it's all kind of led to where I'm at just now, uh, and um, yeah, yeah, things are going pretty well. So, yeah, no complaints. Um, if things had been different, maybe I wouldn't be starting a career in infosec. So, kind of got to mm. look at it that way. Um, yeah. Uh, so, for sure. Um, what's been your most embarrassing moment of your career so far? <laughs> if you can happen to think of it. Oh yeah, and John's oh. fucking follow up. Did it arouse you? That is John's follow up. Yeah. That is John's follow up. Yeah. Uh, most embarrassing thing. Oh, um, I had a job interview one time and I forgot what SFTP was. That was pretty embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a company that I actually really wanted to work for and I would have really enjoyed working there. Um, but I clearly wasn't ready. Um, and it's probably something I'll look at again in the future, like when I'm like in a, a better position because you don't want to move jobs in the middle of all this obviously and I quite yeah. like where I am right now um but yeah that that was fairly mortifying um I kind of just wasn't prepared for the sorts of questions that they asked me and didn't really know enough at the time um so I'm kind of glad it didn't go well but it was really embarrassing and it you did not arouse me from that like um I forgot <laughs> what VPN meant in a job interview yeah. for second line broadband which didn't go down all too well managed to get the job <laughs> somehow uh but, oh there's nothing worse when your mind goes blank like and you just you know it but uh yeah, it just won't come mm-hmm. out like, velociraptors pink uh neurodiversity how is that possibly an easier way of remembering that than the actual words <laughs> oh no i, t- I tell yeah. you what remembering things so quick quick segue when i was at college i was doing uh networking and uh, i had a bam in my class i had a ned in my class uh i think you call them chavs in england um <laughs> And and the way in which to remember the OSI layers was all people see trees near Dalmuir Park, which is like the fucking eight layers of the OSI model. Fuck knows what they actually are, but like that's how I fucking remember it. I'm like, oh yeah, all people see. It's great. Yeah, it's grand. So Starting even better from than the eight fucking... and going down. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. People being something a bit physical and all that fun stuff. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. What else have we got here? We've got actual questions uh, about tea, which is probably quite an important topic. Oh, yeah. I mean, we should definitely fit this in. Asked, um, I can, asked by I our can previous the guest. Artist, honestly, yeah. right? No, this this isn't even an argument. Sorry, Phil. Not on your side. Um, yes. So how you make a cup of tea is boil the kettle. You get a teacup or a mug, whatever it is. Um, you stick a Yorkshire tea bag in there. Yes. You can use Tetley if you want, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Don't care. Um, and then if you take sugar, that's when you add the sugar, because if you add it afterwards, it doesn't dissolve properly. Then you add the water in. You don't add the milk first because that's what absolute psychopaths do. <laughs> you add the water in, give it a minute, give it a stir, make sure that the tea like brews properly. And then you take the tea bag out and then you add the milk in just a dash, like, however strong you like it, whatever. But that's how you make a proper cup of tea. I could cry. After nah, going through fuck reading that. the Yaki's post fuck and everything. That. Like, no, oh, no, 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 no. 
Right, you get a mug. Oh, God. You brew the coffee. You put the fucking coffee in the mug. Fuck can the you tea. bin him off his own podcast? Uh, I can just mute him for this segment. But yeah, let's cut this out. Replace it with the, like, beeping sounds. Can like, I not be cancelled from my own podcast, please? I've only had uh, like, <laughs> one cancellation this year. It can't be fucking cancelled. You're going to get cancelled again if there's another honey block. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's how you make a cuppa. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely the... If if you've not, you jump on Twitter and just have, just follow Yeki. Follow our previous guest uh, if you want to see some absolute monstrosity tea making. Uh, it's pretty grim. He's, he's on you his last need to get warning. Riled up before he's on his last yeah. warnings. But, uh, yeah, on on the on the back on back on track on, on on like the last couple of questions are on the last. The kind of last kind of. Yeah, I can hear the, the countdown timer. No, never mind. <laughs> what is the best and worst thing that you learned in 2019? Oh, 2019. Uh, it is about 9,000 years ago now, but uh, yeah. I know. What in, was that? Like a decade time. ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, the best thing I learned was that nobody knows everything. Everybody's learning. Um, and that's like the most mm. important still, you, skill you can have in this industry is like to be able to keep learning um so you should just go for it add value where you can don't kind of hold back from a situation because you think you don't know anything um even actually especially if you're like neurodiverse or you're from a, a different kind of background to most of the people that are doing the talking your alternative perspective will still highlight valuable issues so mm. um don't be afraid to speak up and everything's a learning opportunity um the worst thing i learned in 2019 was what's a computer um, I still don't know what a computer is, to be honest, so I didn't learn that. Neither does Andy. I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. Computers are hard. Oh, right. Okay. The worst thing I learned in 2019 is that you're supposed to um, dilute screen wash before you put it in your car, apparently. <laughs> are you? That's news to me. <laughs> you can get ready-made screen wash or you can get like concentrated stuff that you're supposed to dilute. Um, and I poured some straight into my car and then my mum was like, did you dilute that first? And I was like, you're supposed to dilute it. But luckily <laughs> it was pre-mixed, so it was fine. I mean, it's it's fine if you don't dilute it, to be fair. It's not a massive yeah. issue. Well, if you live in Scotland where it's cold all the time, it's probably okay. Yeah, pretty much. I live much. in England. Sometimes oh, yeah. it's sunny here. Oh, your people just try to drink the screen wash. So I know, uh, it's cheaper cheap <laughs> than alcohol these days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I suppose that the last uh, is it, oh, no, there's two questions in here. The final final questions before the the, the plug-in. That sounded really bad. Uh, <laughs> if you could teleport anywhere, would cities become a thing of the past? No, absolutely not. Um, I think like fundamentally, people are still really sociable creatures, and they want to be around other people. Um, even if you're not like super extroverted, if you're like quite introverted, sometimes you need like a dose of social interaction. Um, and like some of the best bars and like places that you can go, um, like my favorite bars are probably in Scotland. Um, but there's a couple of really good bars in like Leicester and London as well. Um, and like people just collaborate better when they're, they're together in person. Like I think this year has shown us all that remote working is really difficult. Not being around people constantly is hard. So there'll still be a, a mm. level of congregation, I think, like naturally. So I think cities would still very much be a thing. That's, that's a, such a good answer and relevant as well like yeah no you're absolutely right like, if, like, don't get me wrong I, I really like personally the work from home balance like it, it works for me I, th- I always knew that it would um that said um 
it's not the same just to kind of you know meeting the, your teammates on teams like i absolutely miss seeing my colleagues in person and eventually yeah. there might be a kind of a nice balance to be found between that but um yeah for sure i i, I, I do agree like uh, even if you could teleport i think we'd all have to have somewhere where we can meet up and yeah actually yeah. see each other face to face i look forward to those days in the future me too and then the last question um well yeah it is the last question what's your password fuck off <laughs> fair enough that's a solid password yeah that's, that's <laughs> a solid password right there <laughs> It is Sorry, only, it is only seven characters though, so it not, doesn't quite doesn't quite it. meet the minimum requirements. I might have extra Fs on the end. It might have turned into a base sixty four string. Ah, uh, yeah, because we know that base sixty four is the strongest encryption. <laughs> I'm willing to bet it's probably in the top twenty of like most oh, used no. passwords, or at least the oh, top fifty. See, see the amount of times I come across interesting passwords on internal networks. It's amazing. Like <laughs> you, you just search for. Uh, fucking all these things it's just um... <sighs> do you want to just cut this last minute Dave <laughs> no absolutely not passwords are fucking class uh, right final thing is there anything I'd imagine you probably want to plug is there anything you want to plug in particular uh, probably security queens yeah I think that's For like sure, the only real queens. thing that, that um, springs to mind oh actually no two things um, so if you're interested in cloud um, Pluralsight are offering free Microsoft Azure training until 2025 um, they've partnered with Microsoft and like with the advent of cloud and people adopting it more widely, um, there's a real shortage of cloud skills and, and people kind of need to get to grips with that technology. Um, and there's loads of jobs in that space right now. So if you are, you know, like one of the unfortunate casualties of uh, redundancies and stuff during the pandemic and you, you're looking for a bit of a change or you want to learn more about cloud, um, have a look at Pluralsight because that's really cool and it's free. Um, and then also uh, Security Queens. We blog like every two weeks, every other Friday now. Um, sometimes we give talks as well. Um, we try and cover like a range of content and we're on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. So you can check us out on any of those platforms if you use them. Nice one. We'll put that in the show notes. Thanks. The, the show notes, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I suppose on a, on a closing note, nobody gets hacked. They need a 197 <sighs> IQ and 15% of your password. This is true. Discuss. Hackers don't exist, mate. Cork's a lie. Cork's a lie. (laughs) 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 We said there was going to be no inside jokes. I'm sorry, Mick Raid. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah. No, hackers hackers are a lie. They're not real. This is teenagers scaring you. Yeah, right. that's came from the American president, people. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, the American uh, president at the moment. If you're listening oh, to this God. in the future... Fingers anyway, crossed. Fingers crossed he's not <laughs> the president. Fuck him, he's a cunt. All right, well, Jeez. thank you both for having me. This is a lovely, enlightening experience with lots of swearing from Andy, as per usual. Yep, par for the course in these place, uh, these parts, I'm afraid. But uh, mm-hmm. honestly, th- there's so much kind of valuable stuff in there. I've learned a load of stuff I didn't really... Uh, know about or had just hadn't even considered uh all the best and i'm sure we'll get you back on at some point in the future all right Green. thank you thanks for listening folks and uh yeah we'll see you in, well i say we'll see you'll hear us in the next episode enjoy bye bye